look around you, look beyond. You could make an unbreakable bond. The world around is not what it seems. Souls reveal beyond your wildest dreams. So many things I never could see. So many choices falling on me. Could it be my destiny to be shaman, shaman king? To be shaman, shaman king. If your spirit is strong, you could be the one to do, 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 do. I can look at the world in a different light. I know what it takes to make it right. And I won't give up the fight to be shaman, shaman king. Dun, 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 dun. We need to just ban Sid from singing. No, I'm very disappointed in you, Maxie. You just told me that the Shaman King anime is how you got into manga and you didn't sing along with me. For shame. Uh, well, I mean, I've pretty bad vocal fry so I wouldn't want to inflict that upon anyone but also just I, I had to bask in the majesty of that pitch perfect rendition of uh, of what is just a, an incredibly classic opening <laughs> to a four kids cartoon honestly it's not a bad song you know it kind of fits it right I mean it's it's better than a lot of that era's like western anime openings like the ultimate muscle opening they did that one is weird it's ultimate like this... muscle ultimate muscle it's like this weird like country yeah country it's like country? weird country rock song Oh, like, yeah, yeah, because kinda... it has that weird, like, riff at the beginning where they're, like, using Texan accents. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's weird. It's got a little bit um, folk rock to it, sure. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. I, I kind of think the Shaman King, their Shaman King opening sort of fits the series. Uh, it's better than the One Piece rap. We can all agree that, right? right? Nothing is as good as the One Piece rap. The One Piece <laughs> especially rap as, is Especially art. as it got further in and they had to work out how to fit in more of the characters. Yeah, Sanji's cupping, Jopper's doctoring, and Robin is archaeologically. Did they ever? Did they ever <laughs> I, apparently, there is a version with Robin in it. Is there? Why didn't they use it? The I think I don't know. I think they use it in like one version of the broadcast somewhere. I've heard there's one with Robin. Are you looking this up? Yeah, I'm looking this up. I'm looking up what the lyric of the one with Robin is. Oh my god. In the well, meantime, welcome to our Shaman King podcast, where we look up One Piece. Yeah, we, we look up One Piece <laughs> openings. We're gonna we're gonna spend the entire podcast talking about four kids and their te- very classic team songs. But no, we are going to be talking about a classic, and that classic is Shaman King, which celebrates its 20th anniversary this year. Hiroyuki Takei's classic, his magnum opus. A Shonen Jump plastic, even though it is not affiliated with Shonen Jump or Shueisha anymore. But we are joined to talk about Shaman King today by someone who holds the series very close to his heart, our good friend Maxi Bernard. Hello, yes, I'm the one who likes Shaman King too much. Yes, I mean, Maxi, you told us that Shaman King is the reason you got into manga in the first place. It was a very formative manga for you. Absolutely. Some uh, 14 years ago and a couple of months, uh, for, my, for my 14th birthday, I was like, oh, I really like the Shaman King anime. I want to 
give the comics a go. I hear they read backwards. How interesting will that be? <laughs> and it, I, I never looked back. Uh, now here I am being some sort of crazy wild man obsessed with manga of all varieties. But like Shaman King is the thing that started it. Mm -hmm. And you will, today will be our spiritual guide on our Shaman King journey as we talk about the series and its legacy. I mean, I'll do my best. At least I'll provide the uh, occasional bit of trivia and talk about just how bloody lovely it is. There's a lot of history with this series, and it's pretty dense, so we have plenty to talk about. This could be another long one, folks. But Ma while Maxie has a deep history with the series, Wheelord and I, surprisingly, had never read Shaman King before until this year. Well, oh, I that's am. not exactly accurate. Wheelord had. Wheelord, why don't you... Well, actually, let's start kind of at the beginning with you, Maxie. You briefly just covered, like, uh, why you wanted to check out Shaman King. But, like, explain to us what drew you to the series. What, like, was really appealing. Like, why was this the anime and manga series that got you in to this subculture? Uh, that's a surprisingly difficult question. I think a lot of it just came down to it being very untypical of anime and manga of the time. Like, Hiroyuki Takai, he takes a lot of influences from uh, older manga creators, such as Asama Tezuka. And you can see this in these sort of chunkier bodies. They're more stretchy. The arms don't necessarily conform to normal proportions rather than being like these big bendy tubes. The fingers are chunky. Like, t Hiroyuki Takai's hands for early Shaman King is one of the most interesting looking things I've ever seen in my life. They're just big old sausage flaps and I love them and that kind of worked for me a lot of manga at the time in the early noughties was all very uh inspired by clamp or other sort of more realistic things at the time and there was shaman king dealing with uh spirits and world culture of all things uh, not necessarily in the best way it could but it still dealt with it full stop and it just uh, it just tapped that little part in the back of my brain. It was like, this is good. Mm-hmm. There's a lot that's really unique about Shaman King that does stand out compared to what else was coming out at that time, even including like what was in the original Shonen Jump lineup in North America. Naruto and One Piece, Dragon Ball. There is something unique about Shaman King that did set it apart from those series. Though, it does share a lot of influence and similarities from things that came before. One thing that struck me while I was reading Shaman King is that early Shaman King was very similar to early One Piece to me in terms of kind of how a lot of the designs looked and how a lot of the humor kind of played out. And to me, though, I think like the, uh, the lineage, the connection between both of One Piece and Shaman King there was both... Oda and Takei, I believe, uh, were mentored by Watsuki, who, you know, is, uh, is a disgrace, but, you know, he did influence, uh, these, Oda, both Oda and Takei, I think. And that kind of definitely defined, like, how their styles looked, at least early on. I definitely think, like, the way hands are drawn, like you mentioned in particular, uh, Maxi. And then also the way faces are drawn, the way like these round facial expressions with like rounded teeth, and then also like the way gags play out. All those seem very much inspired by Watsky's work and his comedic timing. Absolutely. I mean, and you, you see this across the other people from uh, from Watsky's sort of 
special group of assistants that are mostly quite infamous at this point, like uh, uh, Mikio Ito, who did the Mysterious Masami Khan, and now actually does a series about him, Oda and Takei and everyone while they were assistants and like how they started this series off. Uh, with the names changed very slightly in a sort of very knowing nod to, hey, copyright's an issue. But it's it's really fascinating. Or uh, or the late uh, Gin Shinga, he had a, a sort of similar art on uh, Shonen Detective Q. Uh, and, and of course, uh, Shinya Suzuki, who did Mr. Full Swing, which is, it feels like a more jagged version of the same art style that both Oda and Takei started with. But it's definitely in that wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. Uh, interestingly, if you talk about the original uh, Shonen Jump lineup and how like there's this connection you can see between One Piece and Shaman King, you can even kind of see a connection as well between uh, Shaman King and Naruto that isn't necessarily as obvious and does require one little bit of bonus knowledge, which is a lot of it is to do with aspirations towards that one ultimate goal, which is you know very typical Shonen Jump. But uh, Hiroyuki Takai was also an assistant to uh, Koji Kiriyama. Yeah, I got his name right. The author of Ninku. Uh, Ninku, of course, being the uh, mid-90s Shonen Jump Ninja series that was the core inspiration behind Naruto. So it's like it's very much a little small world microcosm with how things got thrown together in Viz's magazine. That's really fascinating. When you look at the lineup of Shonen Jump and you see like how one generation influenced the next and how there is this cross mix of influences. I think Shamahim definitely kind of represents that very well in terms of having such a broad range of influences, not just from other manga, but from other cultures, from Western media, from all sorts of different places that makes for a really unique read. Absolutely, for sure. I mean, Takei makes a point of listing, whenever doing sort of profiles, that American comics and manga are both like a sort of equal influence to him. And you can... You can kind of see that. It, it, it's, it, I mean, that's the most obvious, easy sort of, ah, oh, multicultural, it goes between the East and the West sort of thing. But it's no less true. And the attempts at encoding a racially and culturally diverse group of shamans from the world over eh, mostly worked. Like, the intent is really good. And I think that made it stand out in an interesting way uh, for, for the time and definitely now. So I've kind of gone tangential there. My mind was just thinking about that. Mm -hmm. There is a lot of really interesting things to dig about, about like what influenced Shaman King and then like how Takei took those influences and made them into like a cohesive story that ha is unified by very core teams. And I think that's what draws me most to Shaman King as I read through it for the first time is like, how Takei is able to take all these really disparate and really, like, ideas that feel like they should starkly contrast with one another or conflict with one another, but he makes it work because he has this core ideology that he's exploring throughout the series and trying to find an answer to. And to me, that's what's really fascinating about the series. But I want to talk about you, Lord, because you got into the series way before I did, years before I did, and you've been a Takei fan ever since, even though it took you until five <laughs> seconds before we recorded this <laughs> podcast to finish reading Shaman King. Yes, embarrassingly so. So yeah, I got, like, into Shaman King. Uh, so, like, I guess the first thing I would explain is that what first drew me to Takei wasn't Shaman King. It was actually his other series, Karakuri Doji Ultimo. So... Back in the day, uh, Ultimo was running in 
Shonen Jump, so whenever I would go to the library or something, I would see Ultimo in the issues, and it would be like, oh, cool, this art looks awesome, these weird mech doll fights are really cool. And so after, like, kind of getting into Ultimo, I realized that Takei also did Shaman King. And Shaman King was something I was vaguely familiar with at that point because I had been a fan of Shonen Jump for a while, but I, I just never bothered to touch it. So that finally gave me the incentive to kind of start reading it. So I think uh, it was, I think, one summer when uh, Sid and I were going to India for a while, I got a bunch of Shaman King volumes from my local library and I just, like, read them on the plane ride. I think I got through, like, the first 14 volumes while we were in India, and... Wait, hold on. Do, do you take that many volumes with you on, like, a flight? Yes, somehow. But he didn't read oh. them all on the flight. I didn't read them all on the flight, so, like, we put them in a suitcase with a bunch of other books. Oh, yeah, that's still a, a lot to take with you. I don't know, I think, like, one of our suitcases that time was literally just books. So I guess oh that, that's <laughs> impressive. That don't get me wrong. I'm not criticizing that. I I just had I just had to derail it. <laughs> wow, sure. Yeah, I mean, like back in the day, like I think at that time, I think we were aware that our internet, and a lot of our relatives, and just the areas around us weren't going to be that great. So we needed something to do besides just watching like television in Hindi that we can't understand. Hey, we can watch Shin Chan though. Shin-chan was playing all the time. It was in Hindi, but it was, it was Shin-chan. Yes, and Doraemon. Dor- yeah. Doraemon was entertaining, even though we couldn't understand what they were saying. But uh, anyways, yeah, so like, I just brought a bunch of books with me, because I needed something to do. So like, I, I got through like volume 13 of Shaman King, and then like, I, I loved it. It was amazing, and... For some reason, I just never got back to it for a long time. Like, I, I went and finished Ultimo, because Ultimo, uh, despite his flaws, I loved to death, and I hopped on the Nekogahara train the moment it got licensed over in the U.S. But Shaman King was just something, like, I think maybe because of length, I just had never really bothered to finish until now. And yeah, that's kind of, like, really all there is to my story. Mm-hmm. I'm sure Maxi probably has a way more interesting history. Well, he just told it to us. Did he? Did he? Yeah. It it still develops now, because the thing is, is you're saying you finished reading Shaman King like five seconds before we started recording, but also, you have you actually finished reading Shaman King? That's the question, isn't it? Because Shaman King is a series that has really never ending. It's been franchised along the lines of Dragon Ball and Fist of the North Star and all those, and Saint Seiya and all those other series that are super popular and that there are spin-offs, there are sequels, there's a lot of Shaman King out there left to read. And for me, I have only read the core series. I've read the just everything that was ran, run in Shonen Jump and then the ending as published in the Kanzen Bang as they were called. Oh yeah, one other funny thing I forgot to mention is that I actually read the Kazangbang ending before I actually finished the series. Like, for When was that? That was like... That must have been a, hmm? a very confusing experience. It was? Like, okay, so I read it after like probably a few volumes of the series just because I was curious. I don't know, because I, I had heard it, yeah, like it had been published years after the original series had ended. So I guess I was curious like what exactly 
it looked like in terms of like the art difference. So I was just like, okay, I'm not going to understand this story at all. And I'll probably forget it by the time I actually get back to it in my proper read. So yeah, I just kind of read all those chapters. I don't know why I did that, but... Well, I mean, at least <laughs> you have an understanding of how it actually concluded rather than uh, the previously official Viz release ending where the comic originally ended in Shonen Jump uh, with... In fact, no, with, with additionals to what was in the volume, because the, the actual Shonen Jump run just kind of ended weirdly with uh, a dream sequence, whereas the 32-volume run ends with Manta waking up from the dream and I'm going, oh, we're going to do Psych. Yeah, <laughs> which they do, which, which is, they do like, in what? later into, like, the Kazembang, like, yeah, chapters they, is part of one of the other chapters. Yeah, they like, repurpose they, uh, it as the beginning of, like, chapter 295. Yeah, so it's, Manta. like, redrawn and stuff, of it's, course. Yeah, it's redrawn, so... This chapter is kind of removed and then remade into a different chapter. Which, I mean, is I mean, fine, because that, that, it's basically a non-ending. It, yeah, it's, it provides yeah. a little more closure than, like, just ending with the dream sequence image. In the, in the sense that, oh, Anna is going to go, is going to take Manta and uh, Anna, and they're going to go uh, find Yo. And so, yeah. Uh, for the sake of people who maybe don't know a lot about Shaman King, should we just go and give a very quick explanation of like it, its core, I suppose? That's true. We should give a brief synopsis of the premise. We Lord, since you just finished reading it, why don't you do the honors? Do I have to? <laughs> I'm making you. If you do it badly, uh, of course, we can explain it. Um, So it's about a kid named Yo who can see spirits. He wants to be the Shaman King. And, uh... Now what is the Shaman King? The Shaman King is, like, the, uh... Basically the strongest shaman who can, uh... Like, basically control the world with the Great Spirit. Who is the Great Spirit? Uh, the Great Spirit is, like, a collective of all the souls that have passed on. And, like, it's all-powerful and knows and sees all. It's and How often yeah. do we get a new Shaman King? Every 500 years? How is it decided who's the Shaman King? Through a Shaman fight. That... <laughs> this has actually worked surprisingly well at getting the points to Shaman <laughs> <laughs> And where does the Shaman fight take place this time? Uh, it's supposed to take place in Tokyo, except it's not really Tokyo. It's an island called Tokyo. <laughs> <laughs> Which is such a great fake out. <laughs> Though they also have to go into, to America for a bit and go on a little road trip and... And who officiates the shaman fight? The Patch Tribe, which is like a Native American tribe, except they are like a lost tribe that's been erased from history and stuff. And who are the spirits that are allied with the Patch Tribe? The Great Spirits? And how many are there are those? There are five. And what elements do they represent? Earth, wind, fire, water. And do they have all of their spirits, or has they, some they do gone not missing? have all of them? Because the main villain of the series, How, stole the fire spirit when he had reincarnated five hundred years before as a Patch Clan member. And who is How? How is uh, the founder of the Asakura Clan that you originates from, and he. Uh, wants to become the Shaman King to eradicate humanity. But is how just Yo's ancestor? No, he's also his twin brother. Yes. And is he is he one other thing as well as that? Wait, what? 
It's he is how he's really uh, just his brother. descendant of the Patch Tribe. Is he really just a descendant of the Patch Tribe, or he was for his second reincarnation? He has had three lives by this point. Oh yeah, in the so story. like he he's also he how is Yo's ancestor because he like he's the founder of Soccer Clan. Then yeah, he's a Patch Tribe member who's like ancestor of Silva, and then yeah, he's Yo's twin brother. And now, here's the most important final question. What's Hal's name in the anime? <laughs> this this is a hard question, because I literally... I don't think I watched episode of the dub that has his dub name. Well, just think, if you were four kids and you saw the name Hal and went, we've got to make this a bit more American, what would you change it to? Hans? Hansel? <laughs> <laughs> uh, wait, no, wait. Uh... Zeke. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> yeah, it's Zeke. They went, how? What do we do with how? Zeke? Who thought I, that I, was a good idea? I guess it's like a shortened version of Ezekiel. I've never really thought what's, what Zeke is short for as a name. I guess that's what they're going for. Why? Uh, Why call him Zeke, though? How, how is how a complicated name for the kids to understand? Because it's I mean, an A and O, Sid, it'll confuse them. <laughs> they, they don't need to know about the names of two vowels following each other. No, that that's just too confusing for the kids. The kids can't know the truth that there's other people outside America. <laughs> there needs to be a consonant, then a vowel. The two vowels can't be close to each other. That's madness. That's anarchy. Cats and dogs <laughs> will rain down from the sky. <laughs> So keep keep in mind, uh, for kids' version of it, also took wooden sword Ryu, gave him a Hispanic accent, and changed his name to Rio. So like, they're not they're not amazing at this. What? It's, I'm so confused. I've always been so confused about why four kids is so worried about like being like having a you know problematic elements in their shows that they edited out or they like they edit out anything cultural like they'll it change like rice balls to donuts like, but then they have they give characters really racist and stereotypical like, accents yeah but, but like, in the process of, in the process of doing this they're making the material more offensive you'll edit out characters lips or lighten their skin colors but then you'll give them really stereotypical and racist acts. What are you doing, four kids? I mean, we'll, we'll give them points for one thing. If there's, if there's one thing where four kids' infamous dub of Shaman King really does deserve some credit, and that's the main way people were exposed to Shaman King originally, by the way, was the anime. It's that they took the... How do I describe it? The problematic character of Choco Love McDonald, and they went... We'll, we'll get rid of his giant racist lips, and we'll change his name to Jocko. Did they like, edit out wait, his lips in the anime? I, I want to say they did. Uh, no, I'm not so sure. That might have actually been Viz who did it first. Yeah, I feel like that would have been too hard for them to do in the anime. That's that's just too many frames to edit, like, in that an episode. <laughs> Choco, love, four kids. Which definitely is not a weird thing to search. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it looks like the lips survived intact in the anime, but they still at least changed the name to Jocko, which is 
universally an improvement upon Choco Love. Yeah. It's honestly a good name change if they had to make a name change because it's still like a pun on Choco a bit, but it also ties into his gimmick, which is that he makes bad jokes a lot. So Joko yeah. works really well. Plus Choco Love doesn't really even sound like an actual name. I think that's the joke in the manga, at least in the original manga, because like, again, when Joko like tells his name to you, Horror, horror, and Ren, they're like, no, you can't be serious. Oh, right. They just, That's they true. just try and ignore him. <laughs> and they beat him up in the Instagram because it's like, no. I, I feel like trying to ignore, uh, Chocolove is kind of the, the main theme of, uh, of Shaman King. But for his teammates as well, like, horror, horror, and Ren do their best to ignore him. I don't know. I think he becomes like a very respected member of the group. Uh, well, I mean, he... by by the end of the Shaman fight, I want to say he's actually the most powerful of all of them. But like, they still have to ignore his terrible jokes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they still will not acknowledge those jokes at all. There's also this great gag with Joko in that he constantly is kind of being like forgotten about in battle, like. In the fight where, you know, Team Yo and Team Ren are, like, facing off in, like, the last match and, like, the tournament part he of He literally the, the just team. stands there the yeah, entire he, time. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense why he's not, like, fighting, really, because it's, like, he doesn't really have anything against Yo in the same way uh, Horo Horo and Ren do at that moment in terms of, like, the ideological difference. Because he's his philosophy on life is very similar to Yo's, so... It kind of makes sense why Horoho and Ren, who, like, really are, are out for revenge and want to kill Hao, are, like, mad at Yo and his plan to, like, save Hao, quote-unquote, by, like, you know, not kill him. So it's like, yeah. It, it makes sense why Joko didn't really have much of a stake in that fight, like, personally. But it was, like, a great guy when it, at the end of the fight he was like, wait a minute, I didn't even do anything. And then, again, when they're finding all the patch plan, like, when he's fighting, like, the second... Well, the third to last one is like he does it because you know I haven't really fought up to this point. I should I should take one, guys. I gotta do something at this final yeah. battle area. I mean, Ch- Chocolate is a very old character. We'll probably come to uh, more of that later with him because, like, his power ups during the later part of the tournament kind of presented a lot of issues for the story. Yeah, I mean, they. I... Joko is definitely a character that gets so powerful to the point that they have to keep him out of things just to, like, keep the tension. I think that's definitely a problem that happens during Shaman King at several points in which characters get so powerful that Takei has written himself into a corner and so he has to, like, change things up or, like, introduce more powerful characters. Yeah, like, there's definitely uh, a sort of power creep that runs throughout because, like, this series starts with really basic concepts, you know, like shamans can see ghosts, they put the ghosts inside their own bodies to utilize their skills. Like the power level starts at the very base of what's possible. And then as it goes on, it develops the idea of oversouls, which is putting, if you put a ghost inside an object relevant to the ghost, you can generate a sort of magical invisible weapon. Uh, which very much feels like it takes a small step towards the the stands concept of JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, mm-hmm. uh, but not as often as you'd think. And then from there, it kind of becomes like, oh, what if you put it into two objects and you get a giant sword that's so big the anime doesn't know what to do with it? <laughs> <laughs> or um, or what if you have two ghosts and use them both at once, which is kind of where Choco Love's problems begin. 
Like, it, there's this constant raising of the stakes to the point where you then have uh, people like the entirety of uh, Team Gandara who have just more power than they know what to do with in the actual comic. Uh, Sati Saigan in particular, the, the leader of Gandara, is so comically overpowered that they leave her as a mystery until the last two years of the series, and even then don't really do much with her. Gandara is a really interesting question for me, because there are many members of Gandara, but really Sati and the team that Ren fights actually get developed as characters or do much, because it seems like Takei realized that trying to have this third faction, you know, be involved, like, in a combative way. So Gandara is really interesting to me because I think that Takei realized having a really powerful third faction be involved was just complicating too much. So instead of making them antagonists to Yo's group, they become allies, and they don't really become combative characters. They're more like supporting characters who are aiming to make Yo's group stronger so they can be the ones to fight Hao, while they kind of are more on the sidelines. So you don't really get to see what most of the members of Gandara do. Takei introduces a lot of them, and a lot of them have some really unique designs, but ultimately only Sati and the team that Ren fights are ever really developed as characters in any way. The rest are just background characters for the most part. Yeah, it's interesting because, like, he does set up the Gendara team pretty early on when, like, Joku does the whole explanation of them. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, they they don't appear until, like, what, the mid-twenties of volumes. Yeah, so it takes two years after, like, their first mention for them to get expanded upon. And I guess by that point, Takei was, like, really reconsidering where he wanted the direction of the series to go. I mean, Takei definitely seems, like, based on all the series that I read of his, like, it seems like he has this habit of definitely having a bunch of ideas thrown out there, and then only some of them stick, and the other ones are just kind of tossed into the trash. Perhaps? Oh, so, I mean, you, you can see this in the, the pre-Shaman fight stuff, where it shows, like, teases of a lot of the characters who are coming up, mm-hmm. and maybe two of them end up properly resembling... Like, who they end up being when they're properly revealed. This takes me to something that, right right back at the beginning of the series, where in the first color page, in the first chapter, you know, in that first two-page color page spread, let's look at all the characters that Takei draws. He draws Yo, Manta, Anna, and the Hanagumi are there, alongside Ren's G- sister. Yeah, June? June. Yeah, June's there, Tamao's there, Miki is there, and Konkichi and Konkichi are there. So it's like, he has a lot of these characters planned out from chapter one, it seems, or at least their designs, mostly. And then I guess, oh, yeah, like, like, most of these characters, except for the Hanaguni, I think, end up serving their role in the series, like, well. Yeah. But the Hanagumi to me, is really interesting, because t- it seems like Takei had the idea for them, like, right from the start, but I don't feel like he got to do everything he wanted to do do with them. Like, the thing with the Hanagumi that's interesting, too, is that they show up on the popularity polls before they actually even were yeah, formally before introduced. they even have names, they're, like, ranking in the top 20, top 30? Like, they, they were that popular off the designs alone from, like, what, two or three panels that they'd sh- shown up in? And I'm not surprised because they're really good designs. Yeah. And I think Takei really liked those designs, too, and he, he tried to give them some moments. Like, he had, he showed one of their fights in the tournament, but, like, ultimately, I feel these were characters that got left to the wayside a bit. Yeah, like, I, I feel that's kind of a big issue with 
Shamaki at times, there's too many characters, and it's hard to really balance them. Ultimately, the Hanagumi do get to go and do the one singularly most impressive thing in all of Shaman King, which is beat the author of Shaman King and his assistants <laughs> in the Shaman fight. <laughs> that is pretty funny. But, yeah, I mean, their fight against, like, the uh, little princesses, or the magical princesses, was also pretty brutal, too. Yeah. But I feel like they didn't follow up on that, like, on on the how they were developing them as, like, characters that well. Because ultimately, they're killed off, you know, when... I guess that's more like a spoilery thing, but I don't know if we've been hiding any spoilers. I, I think you might as well just say it. Like, I think with, with Shaman King, you can't hide spoilers. It's... Everything that happens is this bigger shattering event, even if it ends up undone five minutes later. Yeah, yeah. But when Tekalot, uh betrays everyone because he's found out about how is secret, which is that he can read minds, and he feels so betrayed, like he teams up with Monsumi, who is like Manta's bodyguard and works for his father, who is like this big businessman. I forget, like, what he does, but he's so rich he has his own warship, so. So, like, he teams up with them to, like, kill off basically all of the remaining members of Hao's followers. And then the Hanagumi are, like, trying to, like, run. At, when their their ghosts are, like, trying to run to Hao's side to, like, kind of ask him, like, is this true? Like, did you really, like, keep this secret from us? And then that's when Hao's, like, Oh, great, Hanagumi, you're here. Now I'll just eat you up. And that's basically an it for them. I mean, yeah. we don't get eaten by how, but, like, that they're, the resolution to their story from what seemed to be building up for them, like, as characters, it, it felt like it was cut short in a way. Yeah, like, after, like, the whole fight with, like, uh, Anna, Tamao, and, like, Mikahisa, it seems yeah. like something's gonna happen to them because they feel like, they they might change sides or like maybe they're gonna betray Hal, but that never really happens. They just get killed off. Yeah, and th- that was just interesting to me because they seemed like it's it was interesting to me that Takei had these characters planned from like the beginning almost, but they didn't end up being used in a in a way that seemed significant. This this is kind of a problem that Takei has all through Charming King of having... I mean, we're saying, like, he throws all these ideas at all and sees what sticks. It's more than that, he changes his mind a lot about what he's doing. Like, it feels like a lot of the developments with the Shaman fight and then going, oh, no, it's at America, and oh, no, fake out, it's at an island called Tokyo. Like, I think stuff like that very much comes down to the fact that his original ideas either don't pan out or he just goes, oh, I've got something else I want to do instead, or I feel trapped, I'm going to move on. And... You, I mean, it gets it gets worse than that. Uh, the the big notable one would be the uh, the temporary death of uh, Tao Ren. Yeah, yeah. Who, in the weekly publication, and I think it's preserved in the actual volume releases. Mm-hmm. Um, he's surrounded by all the X laws, and they're like, "Oh, are we going to bring him back? Are we going to not?" And his ghost is like, "No, whatever you do, don't bring me back. Don't do it." And the chapter ends with him uh, actually somehow reviving himself from death, grabbing the gun of one of the exiles and like pointing it at his head and saying like, oh no, you've got to kill me. Next chapter begins, that didn't happen. <laughs> like, half of the chapter never occurred. Yeah, that, that, that confused me because I was like, wait, so was his ghost trying to grab the gun or was that his actual that body? Was, was that just a visual representation of what he wanted to do? Yeah. Like, I feel 
it gets retconned to that, but definitely, yeah, it seemed like Takei changed his mind. It's like, oh no, I don't want Ren to wake up and hold Marco's gun to his head. I, I want this. But it never, it never even gets properly retconned. It's not specifically addressed at any point. It's literally just he goes, "This didn't happen. It's fine. We're moving on." It, it's so bizarre. I, I feel like there's very few. Uh, comic authors who do this without having uh, an unusual publication already, like uh, Yusuke Murata doing his version of One Punch Man uh, will frequently redraw whole chapters because it's online and he can do that. He can revise and republish until he's happy. Yeah, exactly. Uh, in in a weekly magazine, that's insanity. That That is the very definition of what you do not do if you want to uh, succeed in a magazine. <laughs> yeah, it's really strange, um, but it I can kind of see, like, Takei's frustration because with these weekly deadlines, he might not have been able to think through what he wanted to do with the story to the level, you know, that he was satisfied with. So that's why he was consistently, like, making changes to, like, where he wanted the story to go. Because he might have found, like, this idea that, oh, okay, I'll try and do this. But then he isn't satisfied by the direction that things are going. And so then he's like, okay, no, I'll, I'll change it to something else. I think... To go back to with Gondala, that was the case too, because when they explained like, okay, we need to defeat Gondala in order for our teams to be like among the final street teams that will go off to the, to like the final place where the final test for the Shaman fight will be held. And so we gotta defeat all the Gondala teams. And then we have the fight with, you know, Ren's team against one of the Gondara teams. And then after that, that, that's basically the end of fighting against Gandara because yeah, Gandara is, oh no, we're, we're just going to help you guys. We're not <laughs> going to fight against you. And I think that Sh- uh, Takei was like, originally he was going to just have, you know, the tournament just continue normally. But then he was like, after just one fight, uh, no, let's forget the tournament. Let's, let's do some different things and then have things kind of reconvene. Just to get us to the next thing. Like, after the first few matches of, like, the traditional tournament structure, like, it's just completely thrown out in the middle of some conflict is outside the stadium. Like... And one of the nice things about that is that we don't get to see any unnecessary fights. Like, the first set of four fights we see in the tournament are all focused on teams that we are really going to be focusing on throughout the course of the series as a whole. And it's structured that way. We get the the first fight is with Ren's team against Boz, who are characters we've seen before, and they're teamed up with uh, Tekalot, who is a character who ends up playing a huge role down the line. Yeah. In the second fight, we ha- are introduced to Jean in like the Team X One, who also includes Lyserg and Marco, characters we've already previously established. And the opponents they fight, uh, the brother of one of their opponents ends up being. Uh, ends up getting revenge down the line in a really significant way. Then the third fight, we have Yo's fight against uh, the Iceman, which this is a fight that I had like, heard about uh, long before I read Shaman King, and I was kind of like anticipating as I was reading through the series, because on Weekly Manga Recap, when they were doing their review of the series, I remember Roller T was really complaining about this fight in particular. <laughs> Because he said, okay, this this fight lasts a volume and a half, and it's just the Iceman, like, going out trying to attack one of the members of Yo's team. They, they're revealing, oh, I have this super awesome new power, but no, I'm not going to 
strike the finishing blow. And da, da, da. and the thing is that they go into this fight with Yo saying, I'm going to end this match in one blow, which he does do, but it takes a volume for that one strike to uh, happen. So I was anticipating, like, when this fight would show up. But actually reading through it, I, I kind of liked it a good deal because I did like how he showed off Ryu, Faust, and Yo's new powers. Even if it did take a long time, which is, I guess, another point we'll talk about. In and, a like, bit, at but... least from a narrative perspective, there was a purpose to it because Yo wanted them to fight with no regrets. Like, yeah, I he thought felt was... like if he would just take them out on one strike, they would hold a grudge against him because they would feel like maybe cheated out of that actual combat. And thematically, that relates to Yo's philosophy really well that, you know, hate just inspires more hate and, uh, you know, if you hurt someone, they'll hurt you back. So Yo is trying to leave them with no regrets so that, you know, they won't have those lingering, like, drive to... They, they won't be unsatisfied and try and be fueled by that unsatisfaction to do something wrong in the future. So I, I like how it ties into that ideology. Uh, and then, of course, like that fourth match in that first set of sites is the one that shows off how and like what he can do. And yeah, and I think everything ended up being purposeful. Everything ended up having a purpose in those first four matches. And then even the matches we see later down the line, like the Gandara fight... And then, of course, like that final fight with uh, Red versus Yo, you know, that's all pretty it's the essential things we needed to see. So in that sense, I kind of like how the tournament skips all the matches with characters we we didn't really need to focus on that much. But in this, at the same time, they have most of they have like all those characters that would have been fighting in the tournament. They have them fight outside the tournament where they can't be constricted by the rules of the tournament. So it's like Decay was lim felt limited by the tournament structure, so he wanted to have the characters just fight outside the tournament, and then only use the tournament just to, as a means to just finish off certain things, or get things arranged in a certain way that would be convenient for the story. Like having that Ren versus Gandara match fight, would that like introduces Gandara, introduces like what, we can understand them to do, and then they can move on to, like, okay, so now we know kind of, like, the baseline of what Gandara is capable of and what their philosophies are, and now we can just move on to, like, go back outside the tournament and do something else. It also works just really well because then it involves characters that are not necessarily directly involved with the tournament, like Anna or yeah. Tamau. Where yeah, like... it allows Anna and Tamau to have fights, which yeah. is really nice. I really like... love the, uh, the Tamau and June versus the Hanagumi fight. It's really great, honestly. So, yeah, I, I think I'm very pleased with that. And that Takei did decide, okay, the tournament, I'm not going to just have this be the whole series. I'm going to have things outside the tournament. It, it didn't become Mare. Yeah, it didn't become Mare. That's my biggest problem <laughs> with Mare, is that that entire series is just the tournament for the most part. But what do you think, Maxi? I mean, what do, how do you feel about like how Takei kind of just cut out of the tournament? Uh, well, I, I think the cutting into the tournament it, itself is kind of interesting in its own way too, because like the the, the whole tournament structure, it being these three on three things, feels very deliberately inspired by Saint Seiya and especially uh, Dragon Ball's Budokai tournaments. Mm -hmm. But like with the idea of one upping them, because you know you've you've got to be bigger, you've got to be better if you're going to succeed by going, oh, we'll have three on threes, and you can. 
you can almost see, especially with that volume and a half long fight, the realisation of, oh, if it's a three-on-three fight, I have to kind of focus on six characters. Yeah. <laughs> and like, and that's, it's, it's a mess. It's not a great way of doing a tournament manga. There's a, there's a reason why tournaments tends to be one-on-one or at most like tag team setups when it comes to shonen manga. And it's because it's just carnage to try and focus on too many characters at once. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think Yu Yu Hakusho found the best balance in just having the each round have a different rule for how many characters would be allowed to fight in each matchup. Yeah, yeah. and even in Yu Yu Hakusho, I mean, we only have one three-on-three, really, that's yeah. important. And that's arguably well, the worst fight. Oh, <laughs> when, when Yu Yu Hakusho got the opportunity to do a second tournament, it broke the author. Like, yeah. So, <laughs> tournament... Tournaments aren't a great thing to do. The, you literally, they're there. I can count on one hand probably the amount of manga that do a really good job with a tournament structure. Despite the fact that it's like tournaments are popular, they don't really make for great comics. And I feel like Takai had a really hard time moving away from them as well because, like, you talk about the fight with uh, Hanagumi versus Mikihisa and Tamao and Anna and that, like, that still feels like it it's interwoven with other things going on at the same time, and so it all becomes even more eclectic, even more all over the place, and it's hard to really know where your attention should be. Should you be thinking about the fight that's going on even, or should you be thinking about the uh, the mysterious, definitely evil mecha that these two children are hanging around? Mm-hmm. Like, the moving away from the tournament, and... Uh, no, what's the best way to put it? Moving into the tournament is, you can see, Takai trying to... So compromise his vision for the series into something that will like move forward in a structured format and work. And moving out of the tournament is him realising that that wasn't the best idea and making things worse for himself uh, creatively to try and go and keep tabs on the story through uh, through just spreading everything out. Yeah. I mean, I think it probably helped to K to do that too, because there are just too many characters at a, in a sense, like to keep track of. Like, a, there's this great like two-page like uh, just thread, I guess, of all the contestants, of all the contestants, like just all however many ninety-six, yeah. I think. And then later on, there's a second spread of that same thing, but with characters blacked it out yeah and even then there's just so many of those characters left at that point in the story when he shows that that it's like oh wow there's like so many characters we need to follow up on and have closure too and some of them are characters we may not have even been had a formal introduction to and in the tournament structure it had been limiting to get around to all those characters because we have to wait for them to like show back up for their match whereas they can consistently be doing things outside the tournament Absolutely. I've, I've just had this moment now where I'm, I'm thinking of that two-page spread of all the characters. I'm just flicking through the volume I think it's in, which is 13, I want to say. And, like, I think that's another great example of him going, here's all these ideas I have. Half of these characters will not look like this when they actually get to do <laughs> <Yeah>. something. Yeah. <laughs> so true. Oh, no, it was earlier than that. I think it was actually before America that it showed all their faces, which is a worse decision. <laughs> yeah, he- <laughs> I mean, I, I gotta compare, like, those two, the diff, two different times he, sh- he shows that. Yeah, because like, I'm sure. The character designs change. Yeah, I'm sure that, like, there's probably at least a few characters on there that are, look completely different. I mean. Uh, here we go, yeah. volume nine. Oh my god. I mean, first of all, half these characters don't even really appear. Some of them look a bit too much like racist caricatures. 
Oh, Lee you Jesus found it. He's got a mask that's kind of halfway between two different ideas. Yeah. It's. Who's this it's guy in the fish mask? It's like so many characters uh, right. that don't actually show up. Uh, Lyserg already looks like he's in an ex Laws uniform from his collar. Which is weird. <laughs> uh, Jean's not in her Iron Maiden. You can just see the back of her mask there. God, it's bizarre. It really is. Can I. Is Blocken here? I, uh, yeah, there he is in his little Jawa hood. Oh my god. There, you know, one thing that was really interesting here. to me is that when Horo Horo was first teased, like during the fir- like the Ren versus Yo fight, uh, and we first see him, like he's wearing this African like mask and uh, he's surrounded by other people dressed similarly. And then in this two page spread, we kind of see characters who seem to be wearing African ish garb. But when we get introduced to like a did I say horror horror earlier? I mean Joko. Joko love. I mean, yeah, you Joko. said horror horror. Yeah, but when we get introduced to Joko later, like his backstory has completely changed. And then like his posse has, you know, their backgrounds have completely changed. So. No, no, but they, they still explain it. They still explain the African outfits. Oh, yeah, that's right. Because they were wearing them to sneak into the shaman fight and hang out on the outskirts. And then they all get killed. Yeah, they get killed off screen. <laughs> uh, which, which is... Which is great, like, it's literally just this throwaway thing of, oh yeah, we were wearing those masks to, like, sneak them in so they can hang out. And and then all of them uh, get mech murdered. Yeah, and they st- and still, their character designs look completely different from what they look like. Yeah. Oh, abs- absolutely. I-, I guess one tangent from that. Oh my off, god, uh... I- I'm looking at Lucas, like, early character design is, here. Is that He's supposed like... to be Lucas? I-, I-, I think it's pretty, pretty... I think it's supposed oh to be Lucas. God, look at this no. face, it's nothing like Lucas no. that looks later. <laughs> It's like at the bottom, uh, it's like at the bottom, uh, right, like in the second right row, like above, uh, what appears to be Lubstep and Sailor M. Wait, is that, is that person right there supposed to be, uh, Marco? What? <laughs> I don't, it could it, it, I don't think so. It, oh, Mar- I think Marco, no, that's a vampire guy. I, I don't, no, that's a vampire guy, so even though he looks like a Midamaru, sorry. Um, I think Marco is the bottom left of the right hand page. Uh, people at home, please turn to pages 132 and 133 in your copies of Shaman King Volume 9. The weird spiky hair. Yeah, it might be that. But yeah, um, Seiram and Red Seb look look pretty intact as much as they just both look like little kids and one of them's a bit beat up. Although, I guess the weird thing is, um, oh no, which one's the girl's name? Uh, Seiram. Sarah, yeah. Uh, weirdly, she's technically showing an emotion, which the entire that's true. Point of that her contradicts later on. her characterization in the series when she shows up. Is that she's like emotionally like removed because she's you know still traumatized from the death of her father. So yeah. Mm. Well, although it turns out that's not quite true. It's not quite true, but that's like at least the act she's putting on. Yeah. Oh God. Just. I mean, those. Red Seven Seram are um they're difficult characters from the perspective of the series because I feel like whatever was planned for them and their their father kind of kept having little tiny changes to make them less and less effective to the point where it was just like a, a bit of a diversion and now now they're incredibly relevant again but not really in a very positive way uh relevant again now in um in Shaman King, the Superstar. Although, not really. Shaman King Flowers, 
and then hopefully the superstar will pick up on it later. Oh no, it's, they get killed off. It's complicated to talk about sequels. And now I have to um, go read Flowers. But... I have heard what happens to John in Flowers, and I'm not very happy oh, about no. that. Oh, what no. happens to who? John. Gene? Uh, Gene. John. However you pronounce it. I thought it would be Jan. It might be Jan. I, I, honestly, Jan? I can't think of the last time I heard it out loud, so I just had to check we're on the same thing. Yeah, although, I mean, points where due at least... Okay, so, everybody. Spoilers. Shaman King ended in 2004. It did not end properly. It got a proper ending in the Kang Zeng Bang editions years later after people all around the globe starting completely meaningless petitions to encourage Shoresha to do so. <laughs> then they released some Bunkaban editions, uh, which are like a cheap two-in-one paperbacks that were like running every two weeks in supermarkets and 7-Elevens and stuff that contained uh, remix tracks that did a little bit more building, a little bit more uh, connecting the dots between various series uh, including Butz's own kind of, which made it clearer that um, that Dainichi Nyarai, I definitely said that wrong, Sati's um, ghost, is the uh, Bodhisvata that sent the main character of Butz's own down to Earth for his mission. Uh, which is, again, all series connect. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, after all of that, <laughs> uh, Shaman King Flowers happens. In uh, 2012, it was announced in 2011, so that gives you an idea what the turnaround was like there, uh, which was set 16 years after Shaman King and nine years after the epilogue that was included in volume 32 uh, from Bari no Uta, focusing on Yo's child, Hannah, who had been raised by Tamao, because if there's anything about Shonen manga sequels you should know by now, parents are either absentee, dead, or awful. Mm-hmm, yeah. And it does, and it doesn't end there because Shaman King Flowers, by an incredibly bad turn of luck, was published in um in a magazine called Jump X or Jump Kai to some people. So I'm just opening the door for my dog. Uh, okay, there we go. Jump Kai lasted two years. It was not very popular. It was about it was less popular than Ultra Jump, which is the Jump magazine so unpopular that I have no idea why it's still being published to this day. So that got cancelled in 2014 during the middle of a Shaman King Flowers story arc that in turn was based on an old one shot of uh, Takai's from before Shaman King called uh, Death Zero. And at that point, that was it for Shaman King. We'd learnt horrible things that had happened to everyone since. Uh, we had learned about the complicated life of uh, Hannah, uh, Yo's son. We learned about how Hal isn't getting to have the great grand job as God in Shaman King, uh, as the Shaman King anymore. Like, that's not working out because it turns out the G8 aren't just a former political construct that no longer includes Russia, so is now the G7, <laughs> but are also a group of eight previous Shaman Kings that all have to have a majority agreement to allow the current Shaman King to do his job properly. Which is a bizarre thing that leads to the follow-up to the Shaman fight called the Flower of Maze. Which is also a three-on-three tournament structure where you have a manager. (laughs) (laughs) Now, this brings us neatly to, to a quick explanation as to where Shaman King is now and why it's so relevant to talk about outside of just its 20th anniversary. For about the last two years... And most importantly, this year, uh, Takai has been in the process of removing all connections of his intellectual properties from Shoresha and transferring them to himself and Kodansha. 
mostly so that he would have the ability to continue Shaman King in some capacity. And that started this this year in April with Shaman King the Superstar, a sequel series that runs two chapters per month in Kodansha's Shonen magazine Edge, which is also a small side spin-off magazine, much like Jump X was, which doesn't worry me at all, not at all. Because uh, it also runs things like Megalobox. So hopefully, it'll do okay mm-hmm. and not be a cancelled magazine. Uh, but so now we have a sequel to Shaman King that is technically continuing from Flowers, mostly following the third Anna, who crucially it's worth mentioning at this point, Anna herself from Shaman King, Yo's fiance, is a character who's previously from his series Butz's Own and from a one-shot called Anna the Otako, but is consistently relegated to side character status because I guess they didn't want to have her be the main character of Shaman King. But I digress. <laughs> Third Anna, Native American, related to the Patch tribe. She's the current star of Shaman King the Superstar for its current arc. And then we have Tao Jun, Tao Ren's sister, who is alongside Horohoro, the main character for her own series, also running in Shonen Magazine Edge. Shaman King is back in a big way, and it's so difficult to explain to people. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. It's pretty awesome that Shaman King still endures, considering that, you know, 15 years ago it was cancelled because... Jump thought people lost interest in it. Now, that's clearly not the case uh, 15 years later. Yeah, I mean, imagine a series that was cancelled so brutally that its last volume almost didn't come out, and now it's got uh, a full re-release with new covers digitally, with all colour pages intact from Takai's own personal uh, archives, which is amazing, by the way. And two sequel series. Like, that's... That's a lot. And, I mean, a really big popularity poll that was just like, hey, let's find out who's the most popular, and the answer was mostly different versions of Yo. (laughs) Well, I mean, there were only two different versions of Yo that made the top ten. I was saying, in the top ten, beyond that, there's a few more. Yeah. I mean, there's two versions of Yo in that top ten, and two versions of Horohoro in that top ten. Which, Which, I mean, in in the defense there, Horohoro and Anna are the two greatest characters in Shaman King. You know, that's really interesting you say that, Maxi, because I mentioned earlier that Weekly Manga Recap review of Shaman King. They hated Uh, Horohoro. Chris hated Horohoro. He was like, fuck this character. He sucks. His his story with the bear was awful. He got the bear killed. (laughs) I I completely disagree with him. but That's an amazing, heartfelt story about the importance of... um, of how hunting used to be for feeding, about returning to nature, and now it's this disgusting sport thing. I feel like that was a really potent it message. It was. I got so have, he got to have sex at the end of it. <laughs> yeah. Well, when I when I first read that, well, which, which read to that me story, is really right? weird because uh, Kororo, his like spirit, uh, you know, uh, companion, like at the beginning of that story arc, she leaves him because she gets jealous that he makes the comment saying that Lizard's, uh, spirit companion Morphia is cute, and so she leaves him, and so then Horohoro gets injured because he can't use his ice powers when he's snowboarding to cushion his landing. And then later, like, uh, you know, she comes back because Horohoro gives this really, you know, heartfelt speech about, you know, why the Bear needs to leave the the woods, uh, leave be, stopping around Bluebell, you know, for their, both of their own sakes, for both of their protection, and then you know that's 
I feel like I have to say now, just trying to witness this, do you know the origin of Kororo? Like her backstory we find out later on? Or because I'm... We, we we find it out in uh I wanna say in Shaman King Zero, the the, the prequel set of one shots that got a two volume release. But like Kororo was like a a girl who has a, a school crush. Yeah, that's in the series Hororo. itself. Yeah, that's in yeah, yeah. that's in the game right? bags. So, yeah. So like that that's the really crucial thing to keep in mind is like his his ghost Spirit is like this girl who loved him. Yeah, so that's what's weird to me is that Kororo, like, got so jealous that he called Morphia cute that she abandoned him. But then, like, he has sex with Bluebell and, like, she's she's still fine with that. <laughs> like, that's so weird to me. It, the, the whole thing's weird. Oh, I mean, if we're being honest, both notable instances of characters having off-page sex is kind of weird and clunky. Uh, and really, the the first of them with Yo and Anna is pretty much just there to go and explain later on how Hannah comes into existence. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of crazy. He like he had this idea that they're gonna have a kid together like a fourth of the way into the series. But that, but it's also kind of weird to me that like you know just having like these thirteen year olds hook up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, that's really important. They're like fourteen and fifteen. Yeah, <laughs> like at no point would I ever make frivolous accusations because then we have to get into a serious territory to do with a person who Takai formerly worked for and I don't assume there's any of that level of ill intent. Yeah. But it's definitely a weird look. Yeah, but I don't know, I guess there's other shonen manga that have sex with teenagers. I was reading Video Girl Eye pretty recently and I got pretty close to that. So, Video Girl Eye is a, a very peculiar. I mean, that and... I mean, Massacre Katsura's entire rom-com output for uh, Shonen Jump was a bit more risque. But, like, realistically risky? Which is weird, because, like, you get used to stuff like Talavru, where it's just... Yeah. You get a lot of Shonen yeah, where I... it's just teasing. It's like, oh, here's some, like, teasing of nudity and here's some groping, but, like, no, no, real... it doesn't close to the actual sex. I, I think that's what makes Shaman King so shocking with this, because it's not explicit, it's not even really said, but you definitely know that's what's happened, yeah. and it's treated Maturely. Know, both goofily and also just, like, a real thing that's happened. Yeah, I, I think that's why I can, like, kind of, you know... I I appreciate what he does with it because, for one thing, you know, Yo and Anna's relationship has is very well developed up until that point too. Like we know that they are definitely a couple, and they do have mutual feelings for one another, and those are explored like ten volumes later in even further detail. But like we understand that, yeah, these are two characters that definitely care for each other and do intend to spend their lives together. Absolutely. Um. Oh, I'm just bending down to go and grab volume nineteen. <laughs> uh, be- because that's very relevant. And I, I think that whole Montessori storyline that comes up for volume 19 and 20 as, I think, what was originally intended as a midpoint to the series. It and, seems that I way. mean, that didn't work out, yeah. But, like, the, the big flashback that really does show you uh, the, the very real feelings between Yo and Anna, which I, I feel like they're, they're, always, they're always there. But I think people would always focus on Anna's prickliness or... How Yo was very literally designed to be the most laid back stoner in comics. <laughs> like, and I mean, we, we can't say this enough. Like, if you, if you want your 420 weed humor, listeners, Shaman King is 
<laughs> all about weed. Yeah, yeah. Yo, it seems like he's baked all the time. He's like, Always. yeah, man. It's all about peace and love. No need to like, get violent. The, the, the leaf is throughout it. The the Yo's favorite musician is very explicitly above Marley Rip. Like, Sakai definitely likes weed. Yeah. <laughs> like, there's, and people use this as a thing with, like, uh, with creative people to go and be like, oh, they, they must have been high when they made this. And that's that's absolutely a, a bullshit way of talking about this stuff. But it's it is just this very odd thing that has to be noted in here is how much the the imagery of like weed and weed culture runs throughout Shaman King. E- even the logo with like these little like leaf effects coming off it is supposed to partially evoke that, uh, especially more so with the Japanese original logo, which is very very graffiti-ish and flowery and lively. It, it's fantastic. It's a very weird thing about the comic. Yeah, I mean, Shaman King's a very spiritual series, and what gets you uh, into that state of mind thinking about the high spirits uh, other than getting high? Like, getting your mind up in that place. Takai smokes weed, Max Bernard, 2018. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, now that we found the eulogy for my gravestone, <laughs> eulogy, yeah. epitaph, uh... <laughs> Uh, so characters, by and large, get a lot a lot of individual folks on this. We've established this with how the tournament kind of goes really long. Are, are there any sort of big character focus moments that really sat well with you two? To be honest, I really like all the characters a lot. I mean, I think the character whose transformation, whose character arc from the beginning of the series to the end, that's like the most like profound uh, to me was Ren. Uh, who, you know, he starts off the series being this angry, murderous little man. He kills one of the patch officiants, uh, Chrome, the one who loved to dance and sing, as they, as they repeatedly mention. Love- uh, yeah. <laughs> like, every time they say Chrome's name, like, in those early chapters, it's like, oh, he killed my friend Chrome, the one who loved to dance and sing? Yes, he killed him, the one who loved to dance and sing. We must avenge him, the one who loved- <laughs> it's great. But yeah, I mean, I like how Ren has this change of heart and like matures as a character. You know, even getting to that point, as we talked about later on, where he's like, no, I won't let them revive me and sacrifice Yo's place in the shaman fight just for me. And he's, when, even before that, when he's like thinking back and like he's regretting like what he did when he killed Cronin's like, he's looking back at that memory of it. He's like, stop, don't do it, don't do it. And he's like, yelling at himself, angry at himself, and so guilt-ridden about it. And the really awkward part about that whole scene of killing Chrome is how, like, he, he's killing him, but Chrome's still dancing and singing the whole time. It's very peculiar. Yeah, I mean, Chrome doesn't, like, take it, it takes it in stride, he doesn't hold a grudge. Like, I mean, the Ren only is able to kill him because he catches Chrome off guard, basically. Because mm. Chrome... You know, you know, he's pretty. He pretty much like uh, the other patch officiants. He was a strong dude. Like he, you know, in their fight, like he, you know, pretty much held his own. And the reason Ren killed him is because he was feeling like belittled by Chrome. That like he he didn't take Chrome didn't take him seriously and stuff. So yeah, I mean, Ren had like proper psychosis level issues to deal with at that time. Like he wasn't he wasn't a healthy little boy. And even as he slowly slowly started growing taller, you know, not tall but taller. You know, even towards the end, he still holds all these issues. Uh, his his death and resurrection there at like volume eighteen, it makes it makes a big difference. But also, he's never quite 
I don't think he ever really forgives himself. No, not really. Like, that's reflected in his later fight with Nikrom, where... Which, I, I've always wondered if that's why Takai put him with uh, with the rest of Team Realm, with Chocolove and Horahara, because it feels like they're there as these goofy, lively characters as, like, a, an empathy teaching tool for him. But they're also characters who have these deep regrets in their past that they mm. have to, like, work through. I mean... They are also responsible for the debts of other people and even people that they care about. Like, we talked about Horror Horror's past, but, you know, because he had to ignore this girl who had a crush on him because of, you know, his circumstances, he was, like, this child of wolves and his family, like, told him that he, he can't, like, interact with other people or else they'd get, he'd get them in danger. But, like, because of, he ignored her, like, she inadvertently ended up dying because uh, she got into an accident. Mm. And then, of course, with Chocolove, he was a murderer. He was like a gang leader. In his past, he killed Lobseven Sailorin's father. Uh, and he, you know, and... Which is less less of a crime than you do. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, but he killed other people besides him, too. Yeah. And also, you know, he ended up getting Alona, his mentor, killed because his gang members, like, killed him right in front of him. But, you know, he took mm. Alona's teachings to heart and did not, like, get revenge on, like, the people who killed Alona. They, like, he, he forgave them and, like, showed them the error of the ways and helped reform them, you know. His former crew. Yeah. Like, and so all, all three of those characters are connected by, like, that regret of, like, they are responsible for the debt of others and they're trying to atone for their crimes by win becoming better per people now and winning the sh shaman fight and trying to, you know, be have a positive outcome uh, from when they become the shaman king, you know, uh... Horo, Horo wants to have those field of flowers, those... I forget the technical... What the... The specific name. Uh, the butterbird flowers. Yeah. He wants to, you know, make the world look nice with butterbird flowers. Like, Jokolov wants to just make people smile with, you know, his comedy and, and j jokes and stuff. And uh, Ren, you know, just in general, wants to, be, you know, atone for, like, all the, the evil and the all the deaths that have occurred because of the shaman fight and stuff. So, like, they all have those goals. So I think Takai was very smart of, like, having those characters connected in that way. Like, yeah. that's why I think that team of characters is probably, like, the most interesting characters in the series, like, as a whole. Because they're all thematically connected and their development yeah. all ties into one another. Like, they all influence one another in very important ways. And their team dynamic is the strongest, too. So yeah, yeah. I mean, for, for all that can be said for for Team Yo, like at the point that Ryu, Yo, and Faust are a unit, like nothing really changes. You don't feel any stronger bond with them. You don't. I don't even necessarily feel like the dynamics any stronger. They're just kind of a team of very strong shamans. But Team Ren, for all intents and purposes, become the the main team in a lot of ways. I mean, especially once you hit that med point, you have Ren going through his death and resurrection. You have Horror Horror having his big fight against Blockham, where you get to see, I know, him deal with his various inner turmoil about the Shaman fight. You get to see him like protect others successfully with his like stunningly low level of power. Mm -hmm. He still manages to actually like fight and win. You get to see him have a small moment of connection with his father. And then, and then Chocolove has his uh, 
has his death as penance and then resurrection without his eyesight, which is like a huge change. Mm -hmm. Like all, all three of them get the, they get the biggest moments in the story, really. Even when like Yo goes to hell and he gets his, uh, his swan over soul. Like it's not, it doesn't feel like as big a moment if we're being honest. Yeah, I mean, I definitely feel like those two characters have the biggest emotional moments, and especially even with relationships to characters outside of their core group. Like, one of the most memorable Ren moments to me is, like, towards the end of the series, after Ryu has sacrificed himself in the fight with Led just to expose Led's powers to let the others defeat him. You know, they they were originally just going to plan to leave Ryu behind and resurrect him later, but Ren is the one who says, hey, res someone resurrect this fool. He did good. He deserves to be brought back. Yeah, it really, it that's really a really big moment, because, like, at the beginning of the series, especially, Ren just did not think highly of Ryu at all. He did not respect him, and now he's the one... No, he cut off his pompadour. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> but he's the one who's, like, who has the humanity and who has the imagination to say, no, we're not going to leave him behind. We're taking him with us. Mm. Yeah, it, it really just shows, like, how far Ren and really all the characters have come at that point, because by the end, like, Horohoro and Ren have finally kind of come over to kind of Yo's ideology of, like, we shouldn't kill Hal. We should actually try to change him as a person. Yeah. And, like, mm. it's kind of going through this whole thing of, like, conflict isn't the answer. It's not this endless cycle of death, this endless cycle of violence isn't going to solve anything. It will just yeah. re-permeate the violence and the conflict. And, I mean, and, and Ren even, like, follows this through post-Shaman King. He becomes, like, head of a massive company that's taking control of, like, factories and workers and making them follow better safety uh, regulations to go and keep the, the planet safer. He's taken on so many of Hal's uh, former teammates and reformed them by having them work for him. He's married Jean and had a beautiful golden-haired child. Uh, Jean dies. Wait, uh, what? <laughs> yeah. Don't worry about it. Um... <laughs> That's, that's a bit concerning. Um, what? It, it's alright. It's not It's not his fault. It's just because some strange girl with freckles wanted Jean as her oversoul. It's fine. <laughs> that that, that fine. seems worse. <laughs> it's worse. It's much worse. See, this is why I was telling you about why I'm not happy with what I've heard of what happens with Gene and Flowers. Like, obviously, due to my incredible anti-piracy nature, I find it difficult to recommend people check out Flowers at this point, because you can't even buy it in Japanese right now, and there aren't necessarily plans to reprint it until, uh, what are we at, 25? Uh, until October at the earliest, because they will have run through the, uh, the 35-volume re-release of Shaman King. But it is hands down the most insane sequel I've ever found from Anger that doesn't even feel like it uh like it connects cleanly. It's the same world, it's definitely a sequel, but a lot of stuff is just wrong or weird or Gene's dead and someone's spirit. Uh, that Gene thing really sounds like something I'd find in a Western comic. Oh, we're gonna kill off this fan favorite character for shock. Oh my god. Not just that, but but to kill her and to make her a weapon for one of the key villains. Really dehumanizing her. Yeah, it's, that's, that's kind it, of it's so up. peculiar. And it works as a good motivation for, uh, for Tao Men. But it's like fridging. You're fridging a female character it, it is, to motivate male characters. It is absolutely fridging. And the worst part of it is it doesn't change the fact that Tao Men isn't a very likable character. Which is, is a mess. But 
but that's kind of the magic of flowers. No, no one in Shaman King Flowers is very likable because. <laughs> hear me out here. I don't think Hiroyuki Takai really likes young people today. And if you were to if you were to check out Shaman King Flowers, where Hannah is very much the almost stereotypical sort of listless millennial, I guess Generation Z would be fair. Generation Z kid who's like, oh, we're all doomed anyway. What's the big deal? <laughs> Uh, the asteroid Apophis is going to collide with the Earth in less than 40,000 years. Uh, with, it rhymes, just an example. Uh, so, like, it's it, it's written with a lot of negativity towards towards the young people. Only, the only one who comes out of it pretty well is Alumi, the, uh, the third Anna, mm-hmm. who, again, quite tellingly is the main character for the start of the Superstar, which, yeah. to, to get across how weird that is... Part of the cliffhanger we've been left in is that, like, Hannah isn't in the real world right now. He's connecting with uh, with Death Zero, a, a dead military pirate ghost on a mysterious island in the Great Spirit, I think. Hmm. It was a weird time for the series to end, and it's a weird time for it to come back. And I, I know I keep diverging into where it's at now, but I feel like it's, it's interesting to see, because it's gone from a series that was very directionless as Shaman King towards the end, where it didn't quite know how to finish even as it was going through the straight line of let's fight each of the patch and get to how it seemed like it was losing focus hmm. and now it's got it's got like a laser style focus but just for very peculiar things that is really interesting but to me it's no surprise that uh, he he's focusing so much on uh the third generation Anna, since it seems that he's always in really like the character of the original Anna since the beginning of I mean, if, if we're being real for a second, Anna is probably the actual best Shaman King character. As much as it's easy to have, like, individual favourites and stuff, like, the amount of work done with her, even when she doesn't appear in a story for a while, is really solid and three-dimensional for a cat whose joke is basically, you know, the, the nagging wife before she's a wife, and the nagging is to make you physically strong, not to make you do stuff around the house, you know? Yeah, Anna's, like, one of the best characters in the series, and I think might be one of the best, like, female leads in any Shonen Jump series, especially when you think about other series that were also running alongside Shaman King in that time period. Like, even if she's not a participant in the shaman fight herself, she just does so much and has so much influence over the course of the series and is such a well-developed character in her own right that it's like, to me, she's she was like one of the most compelling parts of it. Yeah, compared to say like yeah, Manta, and, and where had... like Manta feels like he goes to the wayside a lot of times, Anna always feels like she's there and like involved. Yeah. I mean, I, I can really drive home how, how far Manta fell from being the focus by just pointing <laughs> out he, he never appeared in Shaman King Flowers. I'm not surprised. Like, he, he, he barely turned up in from Bari no Uta, you know, like, he's... I mean, what will he do? He doesn't have any powers in the manga. Oh, hey now, but what about in the anime where um, he gets Mosuke as his spirit guardian and can put him in his laptop and make it into a <laughs> Oh, well, I've heard about that, but yeah. <laughs> That's yeah, ridiculous. Like, as much as I can lay shade of uh, four kids, the actual anime itself is kind of bonkers. Yeah, I've heard it does not follow them on very closely, which kind of makes sense considering it ended two years before the actual manga ended. No, even even and I mean, I'm point like earlier than points to the anime. 
Quincy Anime, it has a better ending. You would think? Compared to the original run of Shaman King. Really? Yeah, oh, like, the original run. Oh, the Crimson Bang ending is massively satisfying, but at least the anime actually ends. Right, right. I mean, the Shonen Jump ending yeah. is not but, the That's ending. not like, an ending. Can it's literally it? in the middle of a horror horror versus... What's his... Kalim? Kalim, yeah. It's literally in the middle of that. So. Like, that's not even an ending. That is cliffhanger cancellation cocktease. Yeah, yeah. And that's like one of the fights that there was actually a reason to look forward to out of the uh, the patch fights as well. So it's such a weird place for it to just drop. Yeah, it's like one of the, it was one of the best patch fights. It's the one where we get that backstory like Hororo. It's, and Horo yeah. Horo's like, you know, deep regrets about his past and all that. It's so, it's, yeah, it's really unfortunate. It, it ended before he could even draw that. Like, really, yeah, imagine waiting five years to read that. Like, yeah. That, that would be insane. Which, again, I think it's part of why they didn't anticipate anyone wanting the final volume. They were like, who wants this? We've ended it in the worst place. <laughs> At the same time, though, wouldn't 30, volume 31 be a worse place to end it? Because, like, I don't even remember where this volume ends, but it's not a good place either. Like... But, I mean, it, they just wouldn't have collected the final chapters of another volume. Yeah. I guess volume 31 ends with Anna, like, about to go over, like, what everyone's current power levels are. Yeah, yeah. I've got to say, because I have to say it, with every Shonen manga with power levels, it's worth mentioning, power levels are a mistake. Yeah. The, the second you have to apply numbers to stuff, the numbers will get out of control. Yeah, I mean, even in the series and, itself, they end up making a point that, oh, the actual number isn't so much important as how they use their mana. Yeah, I think they mentioned in, like, the hor- fight with Horahara and the football player. Yeah. Like, I think how, like, yeah. uh, basically, like, the mana... Mana will always, like, manipulate... can be e- manipulated based on, like, the user's will, like, and if they have, like, the ability to learn more, they'll increase. Yeah. So it's, like, how much reserve power they have, but it's not, like, necessarily, if someone with a higher level of mana will always necessarily defeat someone with a lower level it, of mana. It's, it's kind of like power levels in Dragon Ball, where, like, literally, you can just manipulate it. Yeah. To a like, point where it becomes that, obsolete. That's, that's not even it for Charming King, though, because it's... Because it's about your power level, which is the reserves of energy you have, but also about the actual uh, Rarioku level of the yeah, ghost, which is the maximum capacity for strength that ghost can have for Which you. I'm still not sure how which that works, is, though. Like, yeah, you're the... supposed to add them up? You're <laughs> yeah, to I guess you... them? Or no, no, no. divide them? <laughs> take the square root of the shaman? Basically, you could, you could have your own spirit power level be 1 million, but if your spirit was Kororo with the Rarioku level 21,000, you can only put 21,000 of your spirit power inside whatever oversoul you make with them. Yeah. So is your spirit's power the only thing that Which matters is, then? Or, or you can only use so, so of much the, of your spirit's power depending on your own level of mana. Yeah. Yeah. This this is why the this is why the great spirits matter a lot because the idea is they have such a high Revioka level that if you've got enough uh spirit power in yourself, you can fully fuel up those. Mm-hmm. Like that that's kind of how that works the concept, which is it's a numbers game, and that's not the most fascinating thing for a fight. You want to see how they fight, which is why, again, we said the horror uh, horror American like footballer fight, like horror uh, horror against Blocken as well. He won that fight running on fumes because he used all the abilities available to him intelligently. Mm-hmm. 
which I, I almost feel like is Takai rebuking himself for focusing on power levels before then, even though he then immediately goes back to power levels. Yeah, yeah. I mean, ultimately the power levels are just a way to kind of, like, immediately let readers know, okay, this is like the comparative level of strength, but this doesn't necessarily mean this character can defeat another character just because he has more mana. Like, I, it's the main thing is, like, to show, okay, this is where our protagonists are in terms of relative mana, and then how is way up here with over a million yeah. or whatever. It's just so the drive home, It's really just to drive on the point that they can't beat how in a physical fight. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and it's a shorthand, because kids love being like, oh no, this one's got the bigger numbers, we should be scared. Yeah. Like, that works great for the younger readers. The The problems come, as, as with Dragon Ball, as with the name you poison here, is when nerds get older and they obsess over the stuff and go, oh no, it should be this way because this one's got this, so Goku could fart and destroy the planet and that's why he's better than Superman, <laughs> you know? Like, there's there's an escalation involved depending on the sort of person who reads them, to be fair. Yeah, but uh, yeah, power levels... Well, I'm always disappointed to see them being used in the series because I feel like it's just not a concept that I've ever seen applied well. It, like, and applied in... a like, thing that can be manageable. Like, again, with Dragon Ball, Toriyama had to drop it after Frieza because he, it just got to a point where it's, like, so ridiculous you couldn't believe anyone could ever stand a chance against any, anyone near Frieza's power after that. Well, I mean, in in Dragon Ball, it's almost deliberately being criticized. Yeah. I mean, al almost immediately from the starting point, it's like, oh, what does the scout say? Oh, it's over 8,000. Crunch, yeah. right? Like, it feels like the statement being made there is, oh, hey, we've got power levels, but they definitely don't mean anything. Everybody reading, look, they don't mean anything. And uh, that was a lesson nobody learned. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing with Dragon Ball, is that it was the villains who relied on power levels, and then the protagonists mm. did not. And after a while, they realized, them. oh, hey, these are useless, because literally, they aren't telling us their actual power level. They can change it whenever they want. Yeah, because you can hide your power level, which is a phrase I try not to use much anymore because uh, Nazis have gotten into saying it. Um, <laughs> let's not think too much about that. But, um, like, yeah, pa power levels. Ultimately kind of meaningless and a bit of a shame, but they serve their purpose for young readers. Yeah. I gave a thumbs up there like you could see that. I don't know what I'm doing with my life. <laughs> yeah, we can totally see your thumbs up on this uh, audio podcast. <laughs> well, I, I used uh, I used Tokugaro to make my thumb really big so you could see I it. I love that so much. Tiger Oversoul. I tried to by having Tokugaro give that giant thumbs up and that the same guy comes to pick them up each time. <laughs> It's amazing. But, and they, they do more with that with the anime because that storyline runs a little longer. So it's constant, the Tokugaro thumb stuff. And actually, that's something to appreciate. We've not really talked about them much. The oversoul designs in both their mutability and how different they can look and how they grow and change over time. It's completely fantastic. Like the Tokugaro thumbs, like a really easy example. He just like put it into his sword to make a giant thumb. Why not? But like, more often than not, they, they slowly shift and change shape. Like, Horohoro starts off as a face on the bottom of his snowboard, then it becomes like a... He straps a snowboard to his arm, and it's like a statue surrounding his arm. Like, there, there's a lot of interesting changes in these designs that are, that are literally just a, a weapon or a power set, and they're probably one of the, the best things artistically in the series because of this. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, they're really visually distinct and interesting. 
I think Kakei is just a great designer in general because he makes all these really unique and very designs. And like the changes in the different forms of the oversouls are all like they, they're a very clear progression in like how more complex they look and like how more human looking they look. Like the first oversoul Yo uses is this like this kind of like bulky like big ball, like, yeah, like bulky ball like thing that's like got you know supposed to be like a Midimaru's face yeah. that's like clamping down but then you compare the that to then, like uh the white swan like yeah. it's a very sleek kind of sharp design and like yo even explains like how what how it's supposed to be used for like more versatile more precise movements while still keeping like a more like fortified like formidable offense mm-hmm. which is like really cool that's like well thought out and the fact that Takei like is able to change the oversoul design so much throughout the series like Ren and uh, Yo go through like so many different upgrades for their oversoul but each one feels special and it has like a purpose yeah I mean and they, he knows how to have them make a big impact too like talking about that fight with the Iceman earlier and like <laughs> that reveal of that giant sword that Yo has and like his new oversoul uh, that that was like a huge moment. That yeah, was incredible. Like, one one thing Takei also does really well is just his use of two page spreads. Like, mm. and I think that's something he's even gotten better even over time in Nekogahara. But just when he knows the perfect moment when to do a spread and when to really show the impact of what's going on in the action scenes. Absolutely, yeah. So I was just I was nodding enthusiastically. Like, <laughs> great. And that that's what works so great for the reveal of Spirit of Sword is that it's like this ridiculously huge sword that uh takes up like this big two page thing. And and then weirdly that might be one of the oversouls that's kind of a, a problem in its own form because after that you have the realization that actually that's probably a little bit too Yeah, it's, it's gonna be hard to draw this. <laughs> or um which again is what led to more changes in how they were designed. You see this with uh the, the original idea as to what happens when you fully master an oversoul in the uh in the Ren Yo fight in like volume seven, is that it the oversoul just becomes the it literally curse, like, become, it becomes a stand. Just coming, yeah. it, it just becomes a stand. A little bit too Jojo, but also I think didn't have that same impact. And then straight afterwards you see he goes back to abstract ideas and immediately it's just this much more interesting take on them. Mm-hmm. Here's another thing worth talking about. Because I always feel that how do you guys generally feel about how everything went with with the X laws as an entity, but specifically with uh, Lyserg? I thought Lyserg's character development ended up going pretty well. I feel like, yeah, in the end, of course, because the tournament gets thrown out of whack. Like what I feel like, whatever they were setting up with, like, oh, they're gonna have to fight against Lyserg, you know, and and then convince him to change his ideology, ended up getting thrown to the wayside. Lyserg just realizes, oh, I, I'm not comfortable with the extremes that Marco and Jean are willing to go through. Like, the fact that they will kill people for getting in their way of their mission. I'm not comfortable with that, but, like... So he, he kind of changes what he want, what he thinks he wants. He thinks he wants to get revenge on Hal and kill him, like the other X-Laws do. But then he realizes he's not very comfortable with taking a life. And I think that is a pretty powerful character arc that, you know, ties into the philosophy that Yo has. And that entire group ultimately has. The group of five that ultimately 
you know, get the great spirits and confront Tao at the end of the series. Yeah, I think, like, one, one thing that I remember is, like, uh, Lysurge really seems to hit hard when uh, Yo mentions uh, to uh, the kids who are using the golem that revenge is the answer. Like, revenge is, like, uh, revenge will... De- death will just lead to more death. That really seems to hit him hard, and, like, he starts to think, huh, he's, like, Killing how really gonna fix anything? It's not gonna bring my parents back. It won't make me happy. Like, what's the point in it? Yeah, I mean, when Lyserg attack, so after Horohoro's fight with like a uh, big guy Bill and Blockin' Meyer, yeah, you know he brew he like like brutally beat up uh, big guy Bill, and then like the other members of Howe's group try and get revenge on him, and like that's. When he's like, what, what are they doing here? And Yo tells him, well, it's no surprise they're here to get revenge. If you hurt people, they'll hurt you back. And that, you know, makes him reflect and makes him think about, hmm, I don't, do I want to continue to perpetuate this cycle of vengeance and hatred and violence and debt? Yeah. Like that's, to me, that's like the, one of the big core teams of Shaman King. The thing, one of the big teams that I found really compelling, this idea of, this cycle of violence that, you know, hurting people will cause pain back to you in turn and how that affects each of the characters, how that's reflected in a lot of different characters. And ultimately they make the decision not to continue that cycle of hatred and violence, but find forgiveness and find peace. Yeah. Like we also see this with Jan and uh, Marco as well. Like after it's like the truth of the Exos is revealed, they kind of really reflect on what they've done. Like Jan is, like, very kind of disturbed in a way that she killed these, killed, like, yeah. people for this kind of false ideology. Yeah, I mean, John's, into- what John thought she was, was a complete lie fabricated by Marco. She isn't, she wasn't, like, some holy maiden that was given, like, divine power. It was like she was, you know, given these powers because of Marco's experimentation. So, yeah. you know, her whole, like, sense of identity and her purpose is just shook, shaken to its core. And so she has to, like, and then, it, of course, like you said, it comes back to haunt her what she did when she killed, like, Anatel, Because Anahal gets revenge on her and kills her and Marco. Yeah. Well, and, I think, like, uh, with Marco especially, like, you, you can really see him mellow out, like, a ton after that whole conflict with Lucius initially. Yeah, I mean, Marco is fueled not only by his hatred of Howe and wanting to get revenge on him, but also for Lucas for betraying him. Like, yeah. his best friend who, you know, founded the Exlaws together with him, he defected to go over to Howe's side. And so he has that resentment and hatred. And the tragedy with his character, with Marco, is that ultimately, like, in... His and Lucas' final battle, In the they couldn't yeah. just finish, they couldn't just, like, resolve their differences, resolve their ideologies. They had to kill one another in order to stop the other, in order to yeah. fulfill their ends. And Yo was like, how could you do this? How could you go to that extreme? I thought there was another way. I thought you knew that. And they're like, well, this is the only thing we knew how to do. Which is so but sad, because they, the re- they both reached a similar conclusion yeah. on what true justice was it was love and like when marco says to like that's that's what they have to give how they have to give how love yeah that's like such a powerful moment because for the entire series marco is just he's so by hate he's so fixated on death and 
proving justice by killing and punishment. Yeah, he and, wants to kill all of House followers, and Yo ha is like st steps in and says, "No, I'm not gonna let you kill this guy. He doesn't deserve to die for what How did. Like when he's trying to kill Big Guy Bill and." And again, like, Marco is like, and then the entire X-Laws are like, we are going to sacrifice our lives for our revenge because we we are fueled by hate to that extreme that we do not, we will disregard our lives for the sake of killing Hal and ending him for good. And so, like, we have members of the X-Laws who do exactly that. They go on suicidal missions just for the sake of killing Hal. Like, Team X2, the ones who fight Hal in the tournament, they go into that fight knowing they're going to die. But their only goal in that fight is to just reveal whatever Hal's powers are to the other members of the X-Laws just so they can ultimately have more knowledge to kill Hal. Like, they sacrifice their lives ultimately pointlessly because they didn't need to do that in the end and that's the same for team x32 when they try to when they go off on their home when they defect from the x-laws pretty much to kill how with their sat with the satellite that ended up being completely pointless it just costed their lives if anything it made the situation work because it alerted the entire world to the fact that the shaman fight was taking place on this island and it drew Manta's father there to try and destroy it and like take over like uh and the facility like, and try and get the power of the shaman king for himself and even like with x3 like when like they actually ha have to take the shot against Hal and Hal's crying because he's remembering his mother like they're hesitating they they even like in the back of their minds they're probably thinking like is this really okay he's he's not just this super villain he's like legitimately crying in front of us yeah so like they kind of realize oh this isn't just some mo nebulous monster this ultimate incarnation of evil that is completely irredeemable this guy that we're trying to kill he has a soul he, he has humanity in him and that creates a moment of hesitation and that you know i don't they wouldn't have succeeded either way again it's just a completely futile gesture that they do but they completely lose their resolve they had at that moment too so the x-laws as a group are a really well-developed group of characters that have like this good uh fundamental ideology to them that gets challenged and ultimately you know gets resolved they they ultimately find the same answer that you know yo is searching for and how to deal with how and leading to you know that great finale where everyone comes back yeah. to to give how love to tell him hey it's okay they also have really cool oversouls that and they have also sort of really cool oversouls that are yeah. basically their cars <laughs> that they transform no, into angels the robotic no looking sense. angels it makes no <laughs> sense it makes no sense but it's freaking awesome and hilarious because Marco was a Marco and Lucas were car dealers <laughs> game <laughs> the priest like their whole backstory was like oh that they presented at the beginning was a lie because apparently they were just car dealers before yeah like what the <laughs> so it's, i like how that i like how that idea that they're on this holy mission is like completely turned on its head and undermined when we reveal like what's really motivating like for marco Mar for marco and lucius initially it was like same as everyone else it was revenge for themselves for how, like, burning down their church and, like, 
hurting their lives and yeah. their loved ones. I mean, yeah, they they did they were very religious because they you know supported local orphanage or church where they were helping out kids, but. Yeah, like they weren't, but it's not like they were on this. Like, they weren't doing it for crusade. some like. They weren't doing it for some greater good. They were doing it for themselves. Yeah, so it's really interesting that Takei touches upon this idea of like they're using their religiousness uh, as a pretense for just pursuing their own revenge. Like they're using it as an excuse to just satisfy their own like angry desires. Which to me is actually kind of a really like real thing that you you're masking like what is a really like primal, selfish, hateful desire with this idea that, oh, no, this is God or dying. We are justice. We are we are on the side of God. So it's actually a really like complex, a, a mature idea that Takei is kind of addressing with what are ultimately really silly <laughs> characters, but also a really compelling. I think Marco uh, uh, is definitely one of the most compelling characters. Those battle armor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's a very valuable uh, sentiment there that you touched upon where uh, the Exiles very much do feel like they're about the wrath of men disguised as mm-hmm. religion, which is historically the cause of the majority of conflict in human history and it it fits very neatly with um with shaman king and takai's like very pacifist message like it uses it uses force excessive force frequently but it's about trying to head to a world where people can be at peace and that that recurs later like the the whole thing with death zero and shaman king flowers that comes up down the line is it, very much about hannah getting a spirit who is like a gun wielding fighter jet pilot. Like there's there's something to be said for I mean it was a kamikaze pilot, I don't know why I said fighter jet. And which in turn says something about pacifism. That it's saying something about the Japanese people who threw their lives away in the name of uh, global conflict, like literally threw their lives away as their attack strategy. And uh it is using that to make a commentary. Like Takai's a pretty a pretty high pacifist dude in his works, and Shaman King feels like the the epitome of that, just because of uh, Yo's entire belief system throughout the series. I think that's what makes Shaman King really resonate with me, because I really, really empathize and relate to that ideology of Takai's, that pacifistic ideology, that idea that you know this again, like that line that just to me just stuck with me, like hate breeds more hate. Uh, if you hurt people, they'll hurt you back. Like, yeah, I, that just really connects with me. And I, I really like how Takei uses these different factions of characters to explore that idea. And ultimately, they come to the same destination. Everyone does. They all appear in that final, that second to last chapter where they all confront Hao. And ultimately, Hao is not defeated through violence but just by showing him love, just by, you know, having, bringing him, reuniting with his mother and getting, having him get some emotional closure and like realizing, you know, what he really wants is not to destroy anything. What he really wants is not to kill everyone, but he just wanted to be a part of a community, to be a part of something, like to have something that he lost again. I feel like that's the conclusion that Kai maybe wasn't able to to come to before the original run of the series ended. Because, mm. I mean, you, you see it with this string of fights against the patch. Like, it's it's become a series of battles to try and get to a, a peaceful solution. And I think it took that time away and coming back to it to realise that the ending, the way of defeating the quote-unquote final boss, had to be 
through love and peace and not through another power up battle extravaganza. And it it really lands it. Like I I I talked about how much I really dislike the original Shonen Jump uh, ending for Shaman King, like just a complete non-ending dream sequence. Uh, the Kanzenbang ending, I think, is one of my ideal endings for a Shonen Jump series. Mm-hmm. Something that really delivers on on what the series is. It doesn't deviate from message. It doesn't just do a time skip, show who's married, and look at their kids. Because, handily, Fubari Nauta had already done that beforehand. Which, I think, left a lot more room for it to just have a a really satisfying conclusion. Uh, like, mm-hmm. from the first chapter, you had been saying, like, people who see spirits aren't all that bad. And throughout the entire series, like, he keeps that idea. And when he confronts Hal, despite he everything... It. He has it. literally every possible person... <laughs> who could see spirits, like, be there on that big old spirit train, proving his point. Yeah, yeah. despite everything that Howe did, Yo was still willing mm. to give Howe that chance, give him the opportunity to change. Yeah, literally no one in the series is presented as irredeemable. Like, from the very beginning, even when we have, we're confronted with characters like Tao Jun or Tokugara, who ostensibly are in, responsible or have done really yeah, heinous like things. Literal mass murderers. Yeah, they, they eventually come to a place where they are shown empathy and they are extended in a hand to and we understand like what, where, who they are as people and they change for the better. So that's something that carries through right all the way through the end of the series. Like even the most despicable of people, you know, are shown to have humanity to them. It's true. Some and the only people who don't perhaps you know get redemption are the people who are the people who aren't aren't willing to change. And I think that's another thing that was important to emphasize too is that you also have to be willing to change, willing to be a better person mm. in order to become a better person to be redeemed. I mean, it shows everyone from vampires to NFL yeah. players <laughs> to victims of nuclear bombings. Like any one of them can both be full of hate and capable of healing both themselves from that hate and doing better in the world. And I think that it's one of the most optimistic messages in a comic I've ever read, and it's part of why the whole series resounds with me so much, is it is just this... It doesn't feel like a cliché moral. It feels like a very sincere presentation of an idea from... almost from Takei himself as to how the world can be better. And that's nice. It's nice to have... Something nice end out a series rather than oh I got the bad guy stabbed him it's fine now you know that sort of thing <laughs> not 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 to dunk on Bleach too much because by saying both that and the time skip children thing that's the big I, target with, here with for Bleach we can actually see the stabbing though so <laughs> yeah but like I I feel like that's the perfect example of the other way it can go like I like Bleach's ending well enough but I don't feel like it says anything of particular import. Whereas, uh, whereas Shaman King's the, the polar opposite, I think it took it took a long time to get to its ending, but what it had to say was definitely worth the wait. Takei may have changed his mind about like how he wanted the plot to go, but he never changed his mind about what the story was about and the the underlying philosophy of it. Like what Shaman King is really about is this idea of. A pacifist and a via of like love versus hate and like love winning out in the end. 
Absolutely. There's a lot we can continue to talk about, but I feel like we just reached like kind of a, a nirvana, kind of a place of like, yeah, this is the core philosophy of Shaman King. This is what it's about and why you should read it. Yeah, uh, I, I'm really happy I finally got around to reading this entire series after so long because it really has just su like supplemented my already existing love of Takei and like his work and like it really just shows how great of a mangaki he really is yeah i really wish i had gotten into the series when i was first getting into manga because this would have been a really powerful formative work for me back then this is like everything that i would have wanted in a series it, because not only do i deeply resonate with Takei's philosophy i really love how this is truly a multicultural manga that has a really diverse cast of characters of all sorts of different backgrounds and ethnicities, which is something that I'd been starving for when I was a kid. And yeah, this is like, this really, that too, it makes Shaman King really stand out. Even if, you know, Takei does rely on some stereotypes that are unfortunate, especially in the case of Chocolove. I mean, but, I guess, like, is it just me or in the the Kazangbad chapters, does it feel like Chocolove's lips got smaller? Uh, I, my, if they may have been. But to be honest, I really <laughs> like that Viz just edited them out entirely. That must have taken an insane amount of work, but honestly, I think he looks better without the lips entirely. Yeah, like... I was he, if the lips had been shrunk, that would be something to go and check over at uh, Mankin Trad or Patch Cafe, like one of Andy's sites. He will have meticulously tracked whether there was a minor change in anything. <laughs> mm -hmm. but, yeah, removing it all together was uh, definitely a great decision on Viz's part. Yeah. Mm. And like, and it was, a relatively speaking, for the time where Viz weren't massively good at their uh, their redraws, and certainly not when it involved the things that were in their monthly print magazine. They did a pretty good job removing the Yeah, lips. like, you, you can't like, tell, it, like... It wasn't hugely Yeah, you known. can't really tell right away unless you've, like, seen pictures of Chocolo yeah, before. Yeah, for, like, mm. the most part, I could barely... I barely, like, had it in my mind, oh, this is what they... What his face is supposed to look like. Like, they did a really good job just taking out the lips and just making it look, you know, this is just how his face is. It, it feels like something Takei would draw just yeah. normally. This, yeah, it's, it still feels like the right character design even though you know a big element of it is missing uh, this is one case of censorship for that is definitely for the better i would say this is one time censorship makes a change that was actually really needed uh, i guess on, the, on that related note on something i just noticed earlier in our discussion about like the first two-page spread the color spread in the first volume in the first chapter so okay in the viz edition of shaman king they censor uh pomkichi and uh, konkichi's genitalia but uh in this first color spread you can see like right here uh, <laughs> with pomkichi his balls are intact and <laughs> holy crap i can't believe they missed this on their first printing i wonder if that's... it's not that, that it's not that they missed it it I believe it's that redrawing color pages is incredibly hard. But it is in grayscale, so you think they might have... Oh, a crucial thing. It's in grayscale in the volume. The The chapters in the volumes are the same ones that were running in Shonen Jump's print magazine, where the color pages were in color. That's yeah, yeah. true, but you think they would have edited for the volume at the very least. 
Maybe. I mean, the series is rated T for teens, which, if that follows the same way that, like, a 12 film rating works, you're allowed one swear word and one genital in the whole thing. That's fine. Well, I suppose Dragon Ball Z did air on daytime TV, evening TV, back in the mid-2000s with mm. Gohan's genitalia just showing out there, so... <laughs> oh, and... And this is release of Dragon Ball as well. Yeah. Goku's dingle dangles right there the yeah. whole time. <laughs> that, the... Even when you can't see it, it's yeah. there. But it, that, that was just something that I know that was like really funny to me. I, mean, I was like, oh my god, did they miss this? Holy <laughs> shit. But yeah, uh, it's, I, I also have to commend Viz's efforts for drying underwear on Monkichi Monkichi and every panel they're in. Well, or even just trying to convincingly make a stretched out scrotum that gets sliced by a knife. Look like a belly. Oh, oh that, yeah. Oh, that doesn't work. <laughs> but again, let, let's take a second to appreciate that what Takai got to draw in Shaman King at one point is a giant pair of testicles getting sliced open. And you just think to yourself, that's kind of beautiful <laughs> in a way. That he got to do this in a teen magazine, like, with, without the same level of controversy that something like uh, Jungle King Tarchan got with a. Uh, with Tarchan swinging off his dick everywhere and pulling his nuts Takei's out. true legacy in Shonen Jump. <laughs> Getting yeah. ball sacks yeah. cut. <laughs> he, he, he got away with that ball sack cut. No one else has ever dared. Oh, they, they didn't have the skill. They didn't have the willpower. I don't think I've left us a good escape from this subject. Uh, no, Cha- like Takei, that's what makes Shonen King so great, is that Takei has, has this really mature, awesome really thoughtful philosophy, but he also draws the most crazy shit, like, uh, like those crazy Reddins to be inspired to Nuki and Fox spirits, and, uh, I mean, of I, course, a the, the golem, which is very clearly an Evangelion. I think, in a weird way, I try and embody I try and embody Shaman King in my very own life. Which is actually very much a sort of just actually learning lessons from it, but I'm gonna make it sound really flouncy. And uh, I, I try to be empathetic and peaceful and caring and listen to problems and be outspoken on mm-hmm. what's wrong. But I will also be really horny on Maine <laughs> all the time. <laughs> oh Funny enough, I don't think Shaman King is one of the more fan service series, though. Like, I can't think well, of... No, no, it, it's just... It's it's rude. Oh, it's crude. Than, yeah, it's very crude at times. It has, it has some... Uh, it has some schlocky humor. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's the thing. Like, I mean, it's um, if you couldn't tell, uh, Tamao's spirits, you know, they might be a bullsack and a penis on a fox and a tanuki. They are also Ren and yeah. Stimpy. <laughs> and are, by default, better than Ren and Stimpy because Takai's not been involved in any awkward controversies yet. Yeah. yeah. So, you know. Remake, uh, remake of Ren and Stimpy, but with uh, Ponkichi and Ponkichi. I'd watch it. Yeah. I, I, would, I would absolutely like be into that it would it would certainly wash away the bad taste of Ren and Stimpy mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm just saying animation studios forget doing an anime of flowers a remake of Shaman King as an anime don't do anything like that do Pionkichi and it's really hard for me to remember both of their names Pionkichi and Konkichi Konkichi it, it's any name where there's a rhyming structure like that my brain immediately goes you said one <laughs> you can't say the other <laughs> I can remember their names because I, I know just from Pompoko that the that's like Something associated with Tanuki, that's like the sound of their beating their bellies, and then Kung oh, right, is a yeah. word for fox. Mm. So, and that's how I remember their names, but yeah. 
Shaman King's real good, yeah. guys. I, I feel like the, the sour note of Shaman King, it, it has to be addressed at this moment in time. Because it's changed hands from Shueisha to Kodansha, there is currently no available English release of it. You might be able to track down uh, print volumes for the first 32, uh, the, like the original run that Viz did. Yeah, it... They're not technically in print. They're not easy to find. The license doesn't technically belong to anyone in the West and right some now. of those volumes are getting a bit pricey. Like, I had to pay 20 bucks to get volume 26 to complete yeah. my collection. And it has, it has to be said, some of those early volumes are inconsistent at best with uh, with wordings and translations. A lot of uh, Tao Ren's attacks, uh, the formatting of how they're named frequently changes between chapters and volumes. But if you can find them, it's worth finding them. Like, if, if you've heard us gab on about Shaman King for the last, like, hour, two hours, however long we've been doing this, uh, to, woo, okay, yeah, we've been doing this for a little <laughs> while. Like, the the main thing I want to take away is that Shaman King is every bit as good as it sounds. It's it's a little wonky, it's a little sloppy, but in turn, I think that makes it one of the most perfect examples of how weekly publication can work. It makes it exciting and fresh every step of the way. Like, there's a lot of things to love, and hopefully, hopefully there's a chance that Kodansha USA will take a chance on doing a Rave Master-style reprint, or if not that, to do a new translation for the new editions. That would be lovely too. I'm not crossing my fingers. I'm hopeful, but we'll see. That's beautifully put, Maxi. And yes, hopefully we will get a re-release of Shaman King by Kodansha USA sometime down the line. Yeah. And one that includes the proper ending, as shown in the Kanzeng Bangs. They better have the proper ending. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, that, which is why I want them to do these new re-releases, because we're up to we're up to volume 25 with the Japanese re-releases now, which have a lovely... English logo, which feels like it's begging to be released. I in think English, they'd have right? to do the, that release too, because that's the only release that's under Kodansha mm. so far. Technically, they they own the rights to all the earlier. Yeah, they are, they are they are they're printing just, those though doing... in Japan. So would they even yeah. let Kodansha USA take that old thirty-two volume release and re-release that? They would be able to let them. Whether they should let them is another matter. Branding's important. Yeah. So it's Regardless, they probably want to use the newest release. Yeah. Yeah. And it would be nice it'd be nice if they did because uh again it's up to volume twenty five now, they're doing five volumes a month in Japan. They're including all of the the short bonus stories, the remix tracks from the Bunker Ban editions. They are going to include all the Kangs and Band chapters, both the extra ones for uh, Marco and um and Thingy, and the actual ending, which is nice. It completely messes with the chapter orders, but it's fine because, honestly, the vital additions to the story. And it would make sense. Shaman King never sold hugely well for Viz, but it sold well enough for them to finish it. And I feel like that's that's probably worth taking a punt I on. Mean, like, I mean, Rave Master didn't sell bucket loads, but it sold all right for Tokyo. I mean, considering all the weird licenses Kodansha USA has done, I'd say it's definitely more than possible. Like, Freaking Beck in the Seven Shakespeare's is like... They're doing Beck, yeah. aren't they? Isn't that the craziest yeah. thing? If you turned around... <laughs> I, mean, I own three volumes of it. It's not a surprise to me. But if you turned around to me the, earlier this year and said, Kananshu are going to start re-releasing Beck, immediately re-release all the Tokyo Pop volumes, and then they're going to finish yeah. the rest of the series, I would have laughed in your face. <laughs> they're capable of doing... They can do yeah. anything. If they can re-release <laughs> Beck... 
then they could bloody well do Charming. Yeah, I was more surprised by the fact that, like, his other series, Seven Shakespeare's, they released all the first series of that Mm. at once, like, all six volumes, and they're catching up to the Japanese release of a series that, like, basically no one's heard of in the U.S., which is so weird. Which is a beautiful thing. And, I mean, we'll, we'll come down to my thoughts as to how this should be done when we get to questions in a bit. But, you know, I, I've, I think there's ways you can make it work. Yeah. I think we can move on to questions, because while we could probably go on for Shaman King for another two hours, I think we reached a good place for it, and we can use these questions to kind of wrap up on our thoughts on the series. Now, I'd like Absolutely. to have our first question we address be from uh, Reddit. We've got one question from there, from Andy Sislens who asks, across all the releases, which is your favorite manga cover art? Ooh, ooh, that's a very good question. Again, for those who don't know, if you're interested uh, in in Shaman King and you want to learn more about it, Andy's Islands, his websites, uh, Mankintrad and Patch Cafe, are the most comprehensive fan sites you'll ever find in your mm. life. Uh, highly recommended. But the, the actual question, I... I oh god my dog farted it's horrible oh but that's not my answer sorry I got distracted <laughs> as he sat by my feet and he's clearly eating something bad it would probably uh, be either volume sixteen which is the the return to well it's the first step into these full color covers where they're like really bright and lively uh, with just yeah I want it with a lot of negative yellow space. Or it would be volume 10, which is just Horohoro doing a sort of badass pose with his hand upturned, which I think really taps into a lot of the things I love, being both Horohoro and Takai's really good hands. Mm. Those are really good covers. I mean, I really like volume 32's cover, which just has all the characters together, because I really like covers that have group shots like that. I also like the Volume 4 cover, both in the original release and also the new uh, release that I've seen. Is Where in the new version, it's like Horo Horo and his sister, and in the old version. Oh no, it. I think in the new version, it's still actually just oh. Yom and Anna. Um, it looks a lot like it, because there's, there's a small increase in homogeny. I might be wrong. I am looking it up on eBook Japan right now. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's still Yo looking and Anna. Because it's just it. it's just the hair colors are a bit different. Because I yeah. think in the redraws they do have Yo's hair match like have like a slight like highlight of the mm. logo's color for the volume. I see. Yeah, there's a fantastic coloring style to them. Yeah, it 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 is Yo and Anna still. But I, I remember both uh, me and Joey Weiser were really obsessed with whether they'd like fully changed it to be a different character, which would have been neat. But still, absolutely fantastic volume four, and especially the. Mm-hmm. What about you, Elord? What's your favorite? Hmm. So I was looking up some of the also Zenmine covers because I look, I really like those as well. I guess my favorite one of the original Tonkabons would be the final volume cover because I just love all the characters on there and just like they all are kind of just like all gathered together and it's kind of cute and nice but I'd say aside from that um my other favorite would be the volume 18 oh that Zenban looks nice cover, which With is the Hanagumi. Hanagumi drawn in like Decay's more uh recentish style which is just like looks beautiful oh yeah that's cool have you seen how the uh how the kangs and bang covers actually work as well i have not so like this is actually really fascinating i feel like you don't you don't really get the gist of it when you're just seeing them as a picture there's an oversole layer on top of the cover 
So you see how, like, the translucent elements, the actual oversights mm -hmm. themselves, yeah. are, right? You lift that cover off and it's just the characters. It's literally just a translucent cover, then the actual cover underneath it, and it just creates this amazing... Oh my god, that's there. so cool. It, it's amazing. I feel like it's one of those things that doesn't really get noticed enough because very few people in the West got the cans and bands. I mean, why would they? You know, Viz was still releasing stuff back then. But man, they, they were like the coolest thing. Uh, I remember seeing it in action for Volume 1 with like Amida Mari being peeled off of Yo's hand, I think, for the Kansan Mans. It blew me away because it, it's such a natural little design thing. Let me look at some of these Kansan Man covers. Man, the, his art style for these covers are really, really good. Yeah, like, Takei is yeah. an artist who really has just evolved rapidly over time. Oh man, mm. this Volume 6 cover with Tamao and Punkuji and Konkuji is actually super cool. Yeah, right? Like, which seems kind of strange to say for Kion Kitchen. They look right? actually like, kind of badass here. <laughs> yeah. But the Kangsanbar covers are great. The only thing I'm not really hot on them is the digital colouring he was using at the time. You see it with uh, with Ultimo and Jumbor as well, which were coming out around the same point. And they, they look a little too muted and unlively, whereas I, I really am loving all these uh, redrawn covers for the for the Edge editions that are coming out now. Because he's just using, I know, it, it almost looks like a brush effect. I, I'm not even sure how to describe it, but the colors are gorgeous. Yeah, like, I, I, I was at issues with, the, like, the ultimate, co ultimate covers, because a lot of them, a lot of them, they look good, but they don't really have the same impact that is, like, that is Shaman King or his Nekogahara covers really have. Like, uh, one, I, one I really recommend is uh, Volume volume 3. I never much cared for that cover on the original run, uh, especially in the Japanese one where the, the colours printed out weirdly dark. But the, the redrawn one of it is so vibrant and interesting and really highlights the, uh, the, the religious outfit, uh, the cultural outfitting he's wearing there. And it, it's absolutely brilliant. Yeah, I mean, there's some really cool covers, past and present. Mm. I mean, even even Flowers had some nice covers. They were just character-focused ones, but they felt in the spirit of the original Shaman King covers, but with a with a white background instead of the original black background. Mm. And that that was nice. Mm -hmm. you, you can't you can't go wrong with Shaman King. Gen genuinely, every single run it's had, every sequel it's had, the covers are good. Takai is he's probably a better illustrator than he is an actual uh, comic artist. And that's saying a lot because he's a pretty good comic yeah. artist. Again, I think he's an amazing designer. Mm. But we also have some more questions from Reddit from Bomber J16, who has a few questions for us here. Who his first question is: What characters do you find the most interesting in terms of personality and/or the culture she/he represents? For me, it's horror, horror. I feel like it's probably because they had the most time to, to slowly do little touches upon Ainu culture there and. I mean, since Shaman King, series like Golden Kamoi have come out, which have done a much better job of exploring that culture in more definite terms. But I feel like it's treated as a nice background element to his character that informs who he is and how he behaves and how he dresses without it being stereotypical at any point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it never feels like it's being like forced upon the reader it's just kind of there and it's like he definitely influences who he is but it's not like he's acting like the most stereotypical like native american like nature loving person 24 7 uh we're talking about horror horror yeah well he's an i knew a native american okay I, don't get there i'm brain farting <laughs> <laughs> but 
Yeah, I mean, yeah. speaking of in terms of cultures that I found really interesting, I mean, I really liked the Patch Tribe. I remember in your original uh, review in Fresh After Victory, Maxi, you found that like some elements of Takai presented them in terms of like you know they're selling uh trinkets on the streets and stuff kind of to support their living some of them is relying on stereotypes but in general i thought that their culture was deeply fascinating and takai did really respect it and do a lot of research in order to depict a fictionalized native american tribe you know really well and in general it was really cool to see native american characters have such a prominent role in a manga or really any piece of fiction aimed towards children yeah. in general it's actually it was it's quite rare especially like characters like silva because silva has like such a strong presence in that first yeah. half of the series he's like, like a mentor figure to yo yeah and he really kind of oh. he's a very like relatable character he's very down to earth and he's just like treated like your normal person he's not overly stereotyped and he's just like a great character in his own right yeah like i i can't fully remember how i originally talked about the patch back on uh, my old episode of french perfect victory but I, I largely stand by the statement that they're kind of problematic in their presentation but crucially it's not a negative mm-hmm. presentation it definitely comes from a place of love and is like it's using it for at most for a little bit of sort of ribbing humor which is absolutely fine. Like it's enough to make you go like a you know a little bit cringy, but even with that in mind, like there's never a point where you feel like it's a misstep. It's just when, when people say science of its time, it's usually a complete and utter bull statement to try and cover up the stuff. I feel like in a lot of ways, uh, Takai's stuff comes from a point in Shaman King where uh, the positive representations of diverse peoples in comic books, especially especially in Japan, weren't very good. And whilst I wouldn't necessarily describe his way of pre- presenting any culture as progressive, it was still so ridiculously far ahead of how uh, other authors were approaching them at the time that it, it really is, like, laudable. It, it's great. Mm-hmm. I would definitely agree with that. And, yeah, I, I mean, I... I think Silva is definitely one of the most interesting characters, and the Pat Tribe in general are really interesting because of their culture and their, you know, history. Other characters that I really liked, I mean, I really liked, again, that entire group of Team Ren. Ren, Horohoro, and Joko were all really compelling characters. In terms of personality, I think Yo is actually an incredibly unique protagonist because he's... You know, he is really good-natured like a lot of other shonen protagonists are, but he's also really chill and mature in a way that a lot of them aren't. And I think that laid-back nature of his, that, that fact that he's not so overly excitable or gets like so easily flustered and worked up about stuff, makes him un- a unique presence, especially makes him stand out compared to characters like Luffy or Naruto, especially like young Naruto. Mm, absolutely. Well... He's kind of great as a protagonist because he's he's laid back to a fault to the point where the focus spreads across mm-hmm. other characters. But that works really well for for a series that's as uh, ensemble based as this one is. Yeah, and then again, like you mentioned before, Anna is an incredibly great character. Yeah, that can't be said enough. Like I'll, I'll say, any amount of characters are my actual favorites. Anna is hands down. Yes, yeah. <laughs> agreed. And his second question is, what do you think stands out the most in Shaman King compared to other shonen? And I think for me, it goes back to what we've been talking about 
that, you know, Takei has this really, you know, strong ideology of pacifism that he carries through throughout the entire course of the series. And he never loses focus on that. Everything is in the series. Every character, every, like, story is ties into that in some way. And I think that's what makes it so unique is that he has this consistent focus that, like, ties everything together, even the most disparate of elements and ideas. Yeah, like, having your final battle being based around pacifism is such, like, a... Oh, yeah, about the pacifism topic, yeah, so, oh, on the topic of just the, pass, like, Takei's, like, ideas of pacifism, like, having your final battle be based around a peaceful conflict is such a ballsy thing, I feel, for a shonen battle manga, of all things. Mm-hmm. Like, the only other example I can think of that is, like, Magi. Because Magi, Magi's final battle was based around political I- ideologies and all that stuff. Mm. But, like, it, it's such a unique thing to do and to really stick to that message the entire way through. Like, I guess to make another Shonen Jump comparison, Naruto always had the kind of idea of, like, people people can change and stuff. But even it kind of fell back onto more of, like, you have to fight to solve conflicts while Shaman King stuck to its guns and it didn't change like those ideas yeah i feel like naruto's comparison is particularly apt because it kind of comes to the ideas frequently of hey maybe ninja or a thing that even need massive reform or to not exist and then it turns around and says yeah but look at these cool jokes <laughs> i know all the evil in the world can be tied back into this one big bad guy who's responsible for all the bad in the world it was too convenient for the purposes of having your cake and eating it whereas i think shaman king never compromises for better or worse on its message. Mm. Yeah, like, there there are definitely things Shaman King could have done better in setting up maybe its ending, maybe developing Howe's more, I guess, subtle sides to his character, even though it did, it already did pretty great, but maybe push that more. But even then, the fact that it sticks to those ideas the entire way through is an accomplishment of its own. Mm-hmm. And what about you, Maxie? What do you think stands out the most about Shaman King? Uh, I'm largely in agreement with the both of you, um, but it's not just the message, it's the the way it balances warmth and humour without being madcap mm-hmm. humour, and very serious dark content I feel like was handled really well. Like There are some points where it's a, a little wobbly, let's say the, the fight against Faust I think might whiplash a bit too often between here's a joke and here's people getting physically maimed. But for the most part, it, it treads this really fine line between getting a serious message out there and being a fun comic. And it does it brilliantly well, even when it does get convoluted. And that's pretty noteworthy, especially when we're coming into like that specific age of Shonen Jump, coming out of the big crash and building itself up into its uh, new shape as, uh, as a multi-million seller, but not as huge as it was in the early 90s. Mm-hmm. And Bomber J16's next question is, what is the best and worst part, in your opinion? Uh, <laughs> that's a hard question. The best part is probably Volume 8 sort of territory, going back to Ren's family home and like that entire plotline. I feel like, we, we've not talked about it so far through this, but I feel like it's one incredibly solid story that gives every character a little bit of something to do and develops Ren beyond psychotic little kid. Yeah. You know? The worst parts, there's a few you can pick from there, to be honest. I'm going to go for the easy answer there and go and say the original ending. (laughs) The worst worst in-magazine endings of any comic I've ever read. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And you, Wheelard? Um, I guess for best part, uh, it's probably a tie between uh the battle between uh the first battle between Marco and Lucius, just because of how wild it is, and then the <laughs> reveal of like angels being freaking cars and stuff. <laughs> I think his worst part, I I would say the the magazine ending, but since Maxi already said that, I'd say maybe the uh. The one fight with the Dracula dude. Oh, the Ryu versus Boris? Yeah, like, there there are parts of that fight that I enjoy, but at the same time, I, I just felt like it wasn't that interesting. You know, when you think about it, it's like Ryu's last, like, focal fight in the series. Like, he doesn't really get, like, a big fight after that. Well, no, Ryu versus Led is a, is a fight, but he doesn't win that, so... But yeah, it's like the last fight he kind of wins in the series. It's kind of a shame because it's a bit of a whimper fight, I feel. <laughs> I mean, it explores his backstory, though. Yeah. Through, like, how he kind of, you know, got shamanic powers. Okay, that's right. I do like that part. So, I don't know then, like, uh, this is tough because I don't really usually try to think of the worst part of the series. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'll throw that here as an idea. There's very little interesting in talking about the worst part of the mm-hmm. comic. Uh, it can be fun to dunk on stuff a little bit, but by and large, it's if something in a comic isn't very interesting, you don't want to yeah, think. It's about especially it that hard much. with a comic you, you go, like, oh, like too, because like you're in your mind, you're sticking yeah. to the points that you love. Like it's like I, for example, I love Bleach. I try not to think about the entirety of Psycho <laughs> Mundo because that <laughs> did nothing for me. Oh my god! In, instead. I focus on every single other part of that comic that really kind of, you know, sat well with me. I liked the Fullbring arc a lot, uh, which apparently is a controversial opinion, but I only learned that recently. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my opinions, I used to be in the camp that really didn't like it, but my opinions on it have changed a bit. I'm more positive mm. on it these days. Negativity in comics is its own special brand of cynicism because a, a lot of nerd culture on the internet is built out of uh, entertainers dunking on stuff i mean we we talked about uh the the weekly manga recap like why we were time one of the things that i first ever heard of him for back in the day was a video just just hating on prince oh, yeah. of tennis oh and, like, god that video and that that root that absolutely rooted him in but i don't feel like that's ever as interesting as when i've heard him be into something mm. you know I mean, I think there's. Just, I think whenever they rag on something like that, it's a lot of fun. Just because they're good. Those guys are, have a great sense of humor. So, but yeah, but yeah. I mean, generally, I love people talking about things they really like and digging into what makes them great. I get more out of those. I think, in general, those kind of discussions. Yeah, I mean, it, it's why uh, I never ended up trying to review um, Universal <laughs> Hot Springs. Oh, that's our fine words it, for no. Vlar. No, no, they aren't fighting words for me. Like, it's it's not for everyone. Arguably, it's not it's that not great. It's not I disliked it. It's not, I couldn't find positive enough words for it, and so I went, you know what? Maybe I just won't talk about the comic, because anything I say isn't going to be a recommendation or a denial. It's just going to be a, well, this wasn't for me, because I don't do the whole dumb yeah, thing. Yeah, like, re- really? Like, I guess going on a tangent here, uh... Oh, yeah, no, I've, I've pulled us away. But I, originally, I was just going to, like, play for time while you thought about uh, what you were going to say. And then it become became a much more stringent point about how much I hate Simpsons. No, but, like, I guess, I guess I'll say this. But, yeah, you, you know, it, it's kind of just my guilty pleasure. It has some legitimately good plot yeah. points later, but that that early stuff it's is... It's incredibly yeah, well drawn. It's incredibly well drawn. Tadahiro Miura is very talented. Hmm. But, like, 
a lot of the early stuff is just kind of like mindless entertainment. Mm. I mean, it, it's great for fans of To Love Rue. I, I don't like To Love Rue, but uh, yeah. <laughs> I guess. Well then, it's for no one. <laughs> Nothing's for anyone. What's the worst moment of Sean King? Uh, do I really have to pick one? Wait, you already said what your worst moment no. was. Yeah, and even that I don't if really you, hate you... though, so... Yeah, I, there's no point in Shaman King that I hate personally. I don't think I really have a worst part, but I, I guess if I had to choose a least interesting part, I think it's the first volume for me. Because I remember when I first attempted reading the series a few years ago, back when We Lord was first uh, starting to read it. I read through the first two volumes. I remember, like, that first volume was... It took me... I didn't really get into it, because I just didn't connect with those, like, first couple of stories and what it was trying to set up. And even in my reread, like, you know, going through the series properly all the way through this time around... Uh, when I read the first volume, like, I liked it a lot better this time, but I still wasn't, you know, completely, like, you know, hooked by the series at that point. Yeah. In fact, it was it was more like Volume 2 and 3, where I was, like, really getting into mm. the ideas. Volume 3 in particular is, think, is where I think the series really, really starts to put its best foot forward with the Tokagero story, because I think... Oh. And that's where it first really addresses this idea of, like, redemption forgiveness that everyone can be, is capable of change, and they all, and like, all these other core teams in the series that the cable explore deeper down the line. But it all, and like, the character of Tokugero and the resolution in that story was very compelling too. As, and it elevates Ryu from who was like a joke bully character in the first two volumes into like a compelling character in his own right too. Which, you know, I'm disappointed that Ryu does not maintain that same level of prominence throughout the series. But he was, like, a character that I really, really enjoyed in those first couple volumes, too. So, yeah. But, in ge but like, going back to my point, that first volume, again, I still think is, like, the it's like the weakest part of Shaman King. Just because Takei hasn't, like, really started addressing what the series is about yet in like a lot of depth or with really compelling antagonists to, to push the story forward and contrast you know. mm. but uh, my favorite part I think is like the entire uh, this is actually really hard because I really feel like there's just an amazing stretch of Shaman King in the middle where the from the beginning of when they start like the tournament all the way until like the end of the episode now, even past that, like, to the end of, like, Lucas, the first Lucas versus Marco fight, it was just an incredible stretch of volumes that I was just incredibly engrossed in. If I had to, like, hammer down just, like, a specific story, one story within that stretch of volumes, it, it's it got to be the the flashback of uh, Yo Anna, and... Matamune. That, yeah, that, that was, was a fantastic. really great story that like really showed you a deeper understanding of their relationship and like their histories. You got introduced to Matamune, who's like this really compelling character and has this, you know, really personal tie to how that we later get explored too. And that was a really, really great flashback and really great story, especially where it came in from. Like after this big moment where Yo has given up the, you know, given up his his spot in the Shaman tournament. That, like, it was a great place to have that flashback. And 
Man, but right there, right up there rivaling it, honestly, is like the epilogue chapters, specifically everything involving Joko in those epilogue chapters. Like when he, his past catches up to him and Luke 7 Sailor and get revenge on him, and then his spiritual journey inside the Great Spirit and meeting Pascal Abaj and then coming back with even stronger than he was before, and then, but like, you know, re emphasizing his core philosophy to get Blood Seven Sailor to like stand down and stop their goal. And like, that, that was a really compelling part of the series to me, too. And I, you know, I, I really like Joko. And man, I, there's just so many moments with that trio of characters, Ren, Joko, and uh, Horohoro, that I could point to and say, oh my god, that was just an amazing moment with these characters. But yeah, I think there's a lot of best parts of Shaman King for me, and then the only like least interesting part is that first volume. But uh, his the final question from Bomber J sixteen is: Are you familiar with Shaman King flowers or some of the spinoff stories, and what do you think about them? I think this is a maxi only question. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, ooh, tell you what, let let's run this down properly because there's a lot of stuff that outside of Shaman King flowers that if you're talking about side stories has to be addressed. So, Shaman King flowers superstar, they're the sequels. Easy. I'll go for those first. Flowers is excellent. Like it's a little convoluted, but it's very it's laser focused. It goes in, it has a very interesting and again cynical shitty kid as its main character, but he he works fascinatingly. You get to learn his connection to to Hal, who again is God at this point. Uh, you get to go and see uh, uh, Alumi, the third Anna, who is. Just amazing. Worst boots in all of comics. Uh, she wears like a dark outfit and then her boots are bright white. It's not a good look. But she's so goddamn cool. Like, that's absolutely amazing. Uh, the the Death Zero stuff, as much as it's still not actually ended, uh, I think has been a really good examination of uh, of war and of conflict that I think deserves to be seen by more people than it can be right now because the amount of people who can see it is technically zero no matter what anyone on twitter would like to let me know after this because don't don't superstar off to a good start focused on the third anna excellent shaman king zero six uh prequel standalone chapters about the main cats before the start of the series it's pretty good it, it doesn't feel massively necessary, but it definitely helps you understand more about the characters, who are already pretty open books. Uh, Mickey's life, just kind of a weird, goofy aside to show how Mickey, sir, and Yo's mum got together, and also just to tell you that Mickey's dead. Uh, from Bari Nauta, young Hannah hanging out with Ryu for the most part. You get little peeks at where everyone at, everyone's at. You get to find out that Choco Love's gotten fat and actually spent time in prison, so... Now he just looks like a different stereotype. It's oh, fine. Relax is one of the most crucial side bits of uh, of Shaman King. It's a one shot that's literally just how going around gathering his followers, and I think it gives you a much better understanding of what could bring together this team of flawed and quite twisted people, but who are ultimately not bad people. And I think that's great. That's amazing. Uh, Mappa Doji, which is set a thousand years before the start of the series, it tells you about Hal's original life. It's a little bit, a little bit messy, kind of interesting. You basically get to learn that a demon who looks like Terriamon from Digimon uh, is partially responsible for Hal being Hal, wow. and that's interesting. I like it. Finally, there's the new spin-off that's focused on Taojun and Horror Horror at the moment, which 
actually feels like the best continuation of Shaman King since its original ending, mm. despite not having anything to do with Yo. It's both Taojin and Horror Horror feel like the same characters almost two decades on. You know, they're, they're definitely those same people. You get to you see by hearing more from Horror Horror and employees of Taorens, you get to learn more about how Ren's grown as a person, and like considering there's tragedy in his life now with Gene being dead, like how he's still fighting to make the world a better place, which I think it much more in the spirit of uh, Shaman King's ultimate message than uh, either Flowers or the Superstar are at the moment, but time will tell. Uh, is there anything else left? I think I think that's covered most of them. Oh, no. Uh, there's a weird one-shot uh, that ran in Jump Square called Yahabe that didn't seem like it had anything to do with Shaman King. It was just about, like, a, a, a boy at school and a strange, mysterious pyramid with <laughs> arms and legs. Looks a bit like that one guy in a hat from Gravity Falls, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, having an adventure with these cards that basically allow you to twist the rules of the world. Turns out he's actually a very crucial villain to uh, Shaman King, Flowers, and Superstar, to the point that this this goofy little pyramid mascot is actually the previous Shaman what King. What the heck? <laughs> it's it's so bizarre, and and it does connect it to the one member of uh, of the Egyptian team who was like wearing a giant pyramid. Oh my! <laughs> which it is really neat in a way. Like I can't believe it connects that. It doesn't connect it as much as you think but it's still like hmm wow you know uh yeah so that's the majority of all the spin-offs and sequels that connect to it the best of them is the new one starring uh Taoshin and Horror Horror is an interesting pair I never thought those characters would headline a series together yeah I I honestly until I read it I was only aware that it was a series about Taoshin and then it like I started reading it and the the first Half of the chapter, if not more of it, is pretty much just horror horror. And I was like, this, this is different <laughs> to what I expected. But it, it's it's really good. And it's it's uh, it's the only one of these sequels and spin-offs that isn't actually drawn by uh, Takai. But the artist who's doing it, their style feels very in line with Takai. And if anything, actually more like his older style uh, towards the end of Shaman King than Takai's current post-Ultimo style is now, which is a weird feeling. Mm-hmm. Did that answer the question? What's the question? I kind of went off on one for a bit. Oh, the question was just, have you read the, the spin-offs? Oh, the answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, originally, I was intent on not actually getting uh, Shonen Magazine Edge because it's, it's big. It's about the same size as Jump Giga, like 600, 700 pages. Uh, but it's also, it's pricier than a volume of manga, which isn't that pricey. It's like four or five hmm. pounds. But in my head, I decided that was too much just for Shaman King. And uh turns out Shame. I'm wrong. Shame it's on you, Maxi. Perfectly, it, it's a really good amount of money to pay for more Shaman King, because Shaman King is mm-hmm. great. <laughs> and that does it for our questions on Reddit. Thank you, Andy Zylinson Bomber J16, though Andy has a question he asked us over on Twitter as well. And maybe we can start with that one first. 
Now that it's switched publishers, how should it get released in English? We've never gotten the true ending or zero of flowers, but asking new fans to start at 35 plus 2 plus 6 plus ongoing series is a tall ask. See, so I was thinking about this earlier, and I avoided saying too much on it because I wanted us to actually get to this question, and I think the best answer is to start with flowers, and when you're through that, start uh, simul-publishing the superstar. Because as it goes, like, Flowers is a sequel, and you need to know a couple of things from the, the, the complete ending of Shaman King, but it works. It's absolutely fine as it is. And now that Superstar's not leaving it on a crappy cliffhanger, I think it would, it would get people in. You know, people are more likely to go, oh, something I've never read before, or have only read through whatever other means in the world, over going, oh, the thing that I may have bought some of before and now it's gone, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, how do you guys feel about it? How would you, if you were to have Shaman King stuff released today for you, where would you want them to begin? I think they should just begin at the beginning with the original series and release all of that all the way through and then move on to the sequels and spin-offs, which I guess they could release those simultaneously uh, since it seems like in the linearity of them it's not necessarily as important because they all take place during different points in the series. Mm-hmm. But I think I really want the core series to be all available with the proper ending as well. Yeah, I feel like if Kodansha does eventually Shaman King, they're gonna do like an all at once release like they did for mm-hmm. Rave Master. So I feel starting with the original is fine because it'll just all come out at once. Yeah. My one hope if they do that, and I guess I said it earlier, I would really like uh, a new translation mm-hmm. because it it's not as bad as Rave Master. Rave Master, uh, I can only speak to its early volumes. I've not gotten that deep into rereading it. But by just releasing the uh, the Tokyo Pop stuff again, it really shows how dry a rush job that translation was out the gate. Like it it doesn't read like people talk, and that was really frustrating with the Rave Master re-release. Uh, Shaman King's translation is better than that, but again, if they just did a new one just to smooth over the cracks, create a uh, a proper sense of continuity through like ability names and stuff throughout the series. That'd be nice. You were saying about them releasing simultaneously, and you made me think about uh, Tolovra again and how Seven Seas are handling that, where they're releasing uh, Darkness at the same time. Mm-hmm. And I think I think that would kind of work because that's a lot of Shaman King. That's uh, uh, forty three volumes roughly, depending. Like, it would take a while to get through. And and people, even if they did like a monthly release of one volume, people could lose interest. Uh, and realistically, they'd probably release it more like how they do Ace of the Diamond, which is a volume every... Month. I think it's every month. month. Is it every I think month? so now. God, if that's the case, I'm very far behind on Ace of the Diamond. <laughs> but like, Ace of the Diamond is a, a weird one as well, because that's got a sequel series, and it's going to take them... A long time to get there, and when they do get there, there might not be a large enough audience to make it worthwhile for them. So I I worry about about taking too long to retread familiar territory. But yeah, I think in general, I I just want Shaman King to be released in any form in English. Just Shaman King yeah. being back in English at all would be something, because I mean the alternative. No, because even the anime, you can't. No, it can't. That. Like, there's English language Shaman Kings dead in the water right now, and that feels that feels wrong for something that you know it was it was third string at best behind like Naruto and One Piece. 
but it was still a cool part of the manga boom in mm -hmm. the 40s, you know? And I think, yeah, it, it's it's deserving to keep around, to, to be available for people to read it. So I hope Kodansha does make it available for us again. On the bright side, soon. it has a better chance than Ultimo. Poor, that, poor Ultimo. That is perhaps probably true. <laughs> <laughs> Some things are best left. Maybe we'll, we'll just we'll just re-release the middle part of Ultima and forget about the ending and the <laughs> beginning weird stuff. But... Just the happy middle ties where everything seems like it's going to be the greatest series ever made. <laughs> but to continue on the trend of questions about Shaman King and its sequels, uh, or specifically Shaman King sequels, Homui Exe asks, "Do you think that K will ever follow up on Shaman King Flowers?" Uh, and the answer there is, yes, he is right now, every month. Yeah. Uh, Shaman, Ki Shaman King the Superstar was advertised as a sequel to Shaman King. Uh, it is 100% just a continuation of Shaman King Flowers, uh, because there there isn't a huge amount of time to fill between between Shaman King, Fumbari Naruto, and Flowers. So it made more sense just to bring Yo back into the fold. Like, he appears at the start of Chapter 2, talking with Hal about the G8 and everything, like, he's definitely going to be an important character again, but it's it's Flowers. It's focused on Anna the Third right now. It's going to return to Hannah and Death Zero in a future storyline that they've already previewed. Like, it, it's Flowers. It's Flowers under a different mm -hmm. name. So we're already getting that story continued. We've been getting that story continued for a while. Yeah, well, only for a couple mm -hmm. of months, but still. Our next question comes from Joey Weiser, award-winning author of Merman and regular on the One Piece podcast and Toho Yaro. He writes, A thing I find interesting about Shaman King is watching Takei seemingly become less and less interested in the tournament structure he'd gotten himself into, cutting away from big fights, setting up an impossible opponent to beat traditionally, etc. Do you think if he'd just stuck to a traditional strength-merited series, it would have been more successful? A traditionally strength-merited yeah. series. Like, if, if it just continues going the straight battle, ah, really, if it wasn't in the past. More like linear the, the past, yeah, escalation, like, like Dragon Ball? It, yeah, just something you'd see more in a typical mm. action series, which Shaman King most definitely failed to be. It wasn't interested in that. Uh, it, it absolutely would have been more successful. Would it have been as good? No, not really. I... I, I I don't think that would have played to the strengths of the series. I think that would have played well to the audience reading the magazine. It was mm -hmm. in. Yeah, if like if Takei had leaned more towards just like straight up tournament battles and keeping that up, I think a lot of readers who are looking for that would have definitely stuck around. But at the same time, it would. I feel like it would taint the ideas and the th themes that the series had been setting up. Yeah, and I think it would have killed the pacing too, because one thing I found really compelling about Shaman King, or at least one thing that was really great quality about it, is that it's a really fast and addicting read because something is always happening, and it just reads really fast, and it's just like moves at a lightning pace. But but also like if you did just the tournament for most of that series, you feel like you're stuck in one place for a long time. And that becomes less interesting. If you're yeah. just, if you, and this is especially a case when you're reading something weekly, like if you're stuck in an arc or like a particular conflict for a long period of time, readers just lose interest in it. They get really tired of it. That's a big complaint that people had about Bleach is that, you know, that a Rancor conflict lasted for years and it felt like it was never making oh. any progress. Yeah. Uh, 
or even the, yeah. the Great Ninja War in Naruto, like people, it still did massively successful because yeah. Naruto, right? But like you could you could vocally hear people going on about how they were just getting exhausted of the yeah. Plus, like with Shaman King, like and, it's and... already a competition, so you're having a competition within the competition. Yeah. So like, yeah, is there really a point in that? Like keeping that up? And I feel like uh, a battle tournament was pretty ill suited to the prospect of finding a new Shaman King because I I don't feel like the way of deciding who would rule a new world would be everyone fighting fighting to the death or near yeah. death. You know, I don't know if that was an oversight on Takai's part or if he like wanted to make a point about it at the time, but. I mean, non-traditional strength is the name of the game for Shaman King. Even, even in a more traditional battle, like we, I was saying about Horror Horror versus um, mm-hmm. Rock and Maya, right? Like that—that's a traditional battle. But the whole point of that is about different kinds of strength, uh, whether it's intelligence or willpower. Yeah, definitely. So I think just that regular, oh, this is power levels. This is the tournament structure, and we're just going to go through this beat for beat. Like, and without any, like, mixing it up or playing with expectations. I think that would have just made it a less compelling read. Absolutely. Our next question is from G. Hennequin, who asks, Should we still call it a Shonen Jump classic if it's moved its IP to Kadansha and isn't a Shueisha property anymore? So yeah, it's an addendum. Yes, we should. Just wanted to hear you talk about the Switch of Publishers. Uh, I definitely think you, we should still kill it, call it a Shonen Jump classic because it ran in Shonen Jump. Uh, yeah. And... Yeah, I mean, for most of its lifespan so far, it was a Shonen Jump series. And, you know, I think we can still acknowledge it as that, even if future releases will not be related to Shueisha or Shonen Jump in any way. Yeah, it's like it's like basically with any real series that's kind of left the Shueisha's hands. Like, Godsider is still a Shonen Jump classic, and, like, Cobra is still a Shonen Jump classic, and just, like... Yeah. It was published in Shonen Jump. It's a part of Shonen Jump's history. And if Takei is no longer with Shueisha or affiliating with them, he was still, he still had a big impact there and he started his career there. So. Yeah. It's easy with these publisher changes to deny the history of it. I I feel like in its own way, by being re-released under the Edge label, it kind of feels like they're, they're wiping it away a little intentionally or otherwise. And you see it as well with Kadansha with, uh, the republishing of um, My Pajama Girlfriend by the author of Hanabado, which wasn't a successful series, but it's still a republishing that sort of reappropriates it as theirs. Or Congo Bancho, I've started reading this recently from uh, Nakaba Suzuki. It ran in Shonen Sunday, but now it's being republished in uh, in Bunkoban for uh, under the Shonen mm. magazine imprint. And it it feels like, in a way, it's uh, it's a denial of where it's been before. But that doesn't change the history of it. And in the case of things like Shaman King, that history is very blatant. Yeah. You like you only have to look as far back as the the Shonen Jump DS games, Jump Superstars, Jump Ultimate Stars. Yo was there as a, a prominent character. He's a a crucial part of of the history of Jump, like Shaman King as yeah, a whole. I mean, is. just the fact that you can buy all those back issues of Shaman King that have all 285 ish yeah. chapters that were serialized within Shonen Jump. Like, the fact those exist out there, you can hunt those down. Like, Shaman King ran in Shonen Jump, it's a part of its history. Yeah, you, you can't erase the history yeah. no matter what you try. It's always going to be out there. Like, mm-hmm. like even our Viz Rhymes have Shonen Jump on the, yeah. on the labels. Like, it's. 
it's there, like, in no matter when Kodansha ever does re-release it here, it's still going to be remembered as a Shonen Jump classic. Yeah, by that same measure, look at it this way. Fist of the North Star is a Shonen Jump classic series. Fist of the Blue Sky has nothing to do with mm-hmm. Shonen Jump, and as such is not, even though it's connected. By that same measure, Shaman King the Superstar is a yeah. Kodansha series, but Shaman King will always still be a Jump series, even though with both cases they've now been published independent of Shuisha. Or, or Horenshi Gakuen is now published by the guy himself. It's still one of the most formative Shonen Jump series of all time. Gutsy Frog, uh, it's now published, I, I think, by the author's uh, own label, doesn't change the fact that it was the big early Shonen Jump series. There's no getting around these these bits of history because it's mm-hmm. history. And you can't erase history. You can't ignore it. Otherwise you repeat it and it'd be really weird if Shaman King had to leave uh, Shueisha yeah. twice. <laughs> <laughs> Our next question is from Terence D. Darby, Twitter or at Joel Dreyer, who asks, Is Shaman King the worst offender of a shonen manga to trivialize debt? I honestly can't think of another series where characters die so often. It's absurd. I mean, like, I feel like it's kind of a back and forth, because the series does emphasize the fact that death does matter. And especially early on where they can't reincarnate people, it does have its impact and it does come back to hit the characters later who do kill others. But I guess later on, like, I guess especially in those later volumes near the end, like, it definitely feels like they become less conscious of trying to not kill the opponent because they could just revive them afterwards. Yeah, I mean, they stop worrying about whether they'll kill the opponent or not, because they, yeah. you know, promise that they're going to just revive them afterwards. Like, like, they literally kill all the patch guards. They yeah. they kill all of them. And, like, even false sacrifice, you know, even though he dies, you know, he still hangs around as a ghost. So. Yeah, yeah, so. Yeah. Uh, here's my incredibly crappy take on this, uh, but, you know, roll with me here for a second. I think, honestly, it trivializes death less than most mm. other shonen series because the deaths happen sure they all get resurrected but they actually happen like uh say one of my big frustrations with one piece is i don't i never felt any substantial impact from the death of ace mm, White for sure they were shown on page but it doesn't change the fact that every other time you were led to believe that someone had died in one piece they then turned up again later alive like i i feel like it had it had numbed the idea of losing people so that when it actually definitively showed you losing people, you just kind of went, oh, well, that's sad. Alexa played off the Cito. You know, it doesn't work. <laughs> Alexa, play the sh- four kids Shaman King opening team. <laughs> and again, it, it uses death as a way to do power-ups, which is, it's fine. It, it repurposes the idea of constant fake-out deaths to to be a power up system, which is it's different. It's interesting. It might seem trivializing, but at the least, it's a core part of the story being told. Mm-hmm. I'm in agreement with you. I feel like Shaman King is very respectful of death and what it means, even though characters are able to come back to life. There is a consequence to that there is like a meaning to characters dying and there there is significance in them being revived and what that means for them like usually there's like a deeper purpose it's like a new when a character gets revived it's a new beginning for them 
when they die for the first time, you know, it's like a consequence of something they did in their past that they had to had to be punished for, and then they come back to life, and now they have a second chance in order to right their wrongs. Yeah, like, we see those Chocolope where each time he died, like, he came back stronger, but also more mature, more hardened, or more kind of aware of what he's done, more ready to face what's going to come at him in life. Yeah. So I was very actually happy with the way Shaman King treated that. It does get a little ridiculous, you know, towards the end where they're like, oh, we'll just bring everyone back to life. We won't worry about whether you die It's or also weird because we don't see the the patch people live. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> we don't see the patch people get revived at the end, but I assume they do. Everyone Silva has a daughter. I'm, I'm assuming all the ghosts that we see at the end did get revived. Yeah. Like, yeah, I would be. I would. There are definitely a lot of patch tribe members. I'd be sad if they just died and didn't get revived. Like lip and rap those little girls. Uh, that'd be really sad if they didn't get revived. I was just like, I'm gonna revive all of you except for like you guys right there. I don't like you guys. You guys can just stay dead. Yeah. Yeah, but no, nah, I think I don't think Shaman King is the worst defender to trivialize that. I don't know what is. I mean, I I kind of am in line with Maxi in thinking that One Piece's fake outs do hurt. The I mean, in some ways, it makes the deaths of some of its characters like really impactful, but it also makes like these false deaths just feel like yeah sure especially sure since they're dead. like oda kind of overuses it yeah way i mean it's hard it, like it's hard to trust that this these characters are dead or like buy into these moments where characters are giving a sacrifice which is supposed to cost them their life when you know you have this in your back of the mind okay oda's done this so yeah. many times already like, unless we see it on screen it's not happening when like, we've only it's happened like, recently with pedro it's like is pedro dead he's not no, dead. i don't believe it like the fact the fact that we've only seen three people legitimately die in one piece in the present day when we've had like at least like 50 plus fake outs it's yeah, yeah. It, it loses a lot of impact mm-hmm. but i think that wraps up our thoughts on that question so let's get to our final question here from metal marion exe who asks a few questions here the first is do any of you play the video games like the gba one i did not play any of the shaman king video games my all my knowledge of them comes from Chris ranting about how much he hated them, and that's why he had this negative opinion of Shaman King for years. Yeah, the only Shaman King-related game I played is Jump Ultimate Stars. Yeah, I mean, that's not a Shaman King game. Yeah, that's that's it's a like, jump crossover game. Yeah. What about you, Maxi? I mean, I, I've, I've played them. <laughs> and what do you think of them? They're, they're really weird um one of them is a a pokemon-esque turn-based rpg Mm -hmm. sort of thing where you're obtaining multiple spirits i think there's even a digimon style fusion system if i remember correctly like it doesn't feel like shaman king at all it's like a a look of pain (laughs) over a different game but at, at the least it goes through it goes through the anime plot a bunch it's enjoyable enough it, like if you if you like your Pokemon's and your Digimon's, it's not a bad game. The other ones are weirder. I think they only made one game of it. They did plan a sequel. It was a side-scrolling 
game in the vein of Castlevania, but very specifically Castlevania 2, the one that nobody oh likes. Oh no. So you're you're going along on like 2D planes, exploring, battling monsters, but much like Aria of Sorrow, which is an excellent Game Boy Advance Castlevania game, uh, you're collecting the ghosts and they all have different abilities that you can use. And it's it's pretty fun. Honestly, it's it it's a decent game. I played it, I like I liked it a lot. It definitely suffered from the same thing as the turn-based RPG in that it wasn't really a Shaman King game. It was just a game made to look like mm. Shaman King. Just fine. You collect Magatama, so you know that <laughs> you must make it like it because Magatama are in the series. So on the scale of like all those Pokemon clones that were made in the early 2000s, how would it stack up? It's better than the Metabots Game Boy Advance turn-based RPG game that had a weird lane battling system. It's not as good as Dragon Quest hmm. Monsters. So it's not as good as a good game. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, if you like Dragon Quest Monsters. Are you hating a Dragon Quest Monsters, Maxi? I think Dragon Quest Monsters is absolutely fine. It's slightly better than the Shaman King. <laughs> that doesn't sound very reassuring. That <laughs> uh, I I'm not massively huge on on the Pokemon style of turn-based collectible mm. creatures battling systems, uh, except for Pokemon because nostalgia. Yeah, that's that's you know. fair. That's the only video games it plays. So that's true. It is literally the only game. But like it, it take it takes a lot to be a really good one. Like the, the Digimon World DS ones I always hold up as being real good. Other ones bit of a struggle. But yeah, so that that, that was all my thought on the video games. I think there might have been a console one maybe, but that might never have actually come out, so mm. Mm. Okay. The her second question is what oversoul would you like to see in a fight versus a JoJo stand? Basically a dream matchup you wanna watch. They're not, they're not massively compatible, so this is hard. Oh, no, absolutely. Here we go. So, Faust's very specific oversoul from his first fight with Yo, where he's animating loads of corpses at once, against, um, what's it, Jay Giles' mother in part Oh, three, and Yaba. Who can, controls people, yeah, oh, Yaba, by making the whole Yeah, yeah, them. that's a good matchup. They... Like, because they're, they're both going for that exact same vibe, so I feel like that'd be a really weird yeah, fight. Yeah, yeah. Basically, zombies versus zombies. Master of Spirits was the side-scrolling game I was thinking mm. of. So, <laughs> thumbs up. Well, one thumb up or two thumbs up? Uh, one, one, one thumb up. The other thumb's <laughs> kind of down for it not really being a Shaman King game. Wow, there were actually lots of Shaman King games, including on on the multiple ones on huh. the PS2. Hmm. Some of those might be worth tracking down and seeing how they hold up. Let's see. What I what oversoul would I want to see fight against a stand? See, if it was just characters, I would want to see Ryu versus Okuyasu because they're both like these punk characters with pompadours. Or well, Ryu versus Josuke, I guess. More even more accurately, though Okuyasu is more for like a a dummy kind of like Ryu is. Hmm. hmm. But like in terms of characters with like compatible or contrasting powers, where it'd be interesting to see how they match against. I guess if I were to go, I guess uh. Maybe uh, Lysurge and uh, his original Oversoul against uh, Jolene and Stonefree. Because they both kind of have that, like, I guess, little, like, str string kind of aspect to their powers. So I think that would 
be interesting to see how they combat against each other. I'd like the one where the rainbows turn people into snails, <laughs> and Jolene thinks about how sexy that is. Um, <laughs> I'd like that to go up against anyone because everyone needs to remember the like weather reports. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah that's that's like that's anyway. one of the most iconic parts of that part, I think. Yeah. Ooh, that stand. Oh, one day that's going to be published legally in English, and the world's going <laughs> to... I mean, we'll probably get it mad. animated before that, at this rate, but... Oh, almost definitely, uh, seeing as the the two-in-one volumes for Dines Unbreakable... Are they... They're not out... Early next... There's, like, there's, like, a, there's like a two-month break between the final volume of Part 3 coming out and the first one of uh, Part 4. Yeah, so, you know... It's going to take a while for the manga to catch up on JoJo because JoJo. They're, they're never going to catch up, Maxi. We both know this. <laughs> Look, at, so, at some point, Arakin has to die. <laughs> oh right? No, he doesn't. He'll clone himself. He's not really so a that vampire. That tap water makes him immortal. <laughs> he hydrates well, and we could all do well to mm. learn from that. If you want to take any moral from this episode about Shaman King, let it be known. But drink water and you'll look young. Yeah. I'm trying to think of someone Horohoro could fight. A guy with ice powers. I'm thinking like Horohoro versus Pet Shop or Horohoro versus that oh. guy with ice powers in part five. Gashio or whatever? Yeah. yeah, like, yeah Picks all those weird no, like we're think- jokes. We're thinking too much about <laughs> matching them. Horohoro versus <laughs> Oh, Apple. Yeah, yeah. Bit of fire and ice action. That would mm-hmm. be really interesting. Just a big old steamy fight. Oh, yeah. Let's, let's have a... Yo, with his giant sword over soul, like go up against Polnareff. Let's let's see if Polnareff's uh, little rapier can can fight against a giant sword over soul. Let's see if that armor stand if his his uh his civil area can handle handle that. That that'd be fun. But uh, yeah, I can't think of any more right now. But that brings us to our final question from Middle Marion, which I think is a perfect question to bring us full circle. On the Shaman King podcast, can you sing the dub opening, guys? I want you to join me here. Do I have Get to? Ready? Yeah, yeah. Okay. This is how we're gonna end the show. Oh, oh no. Which actually, we should probably go through our where you can find us and all that, and then properly round it up, round it up with all of us singing the Shaman King uh, opening to close the show. Okay. So, yeah, this has been our Shaman King podcast. That has been as characteristic of us, very long, but very thorough and informative. And thank you once again, Maxie, for coming on the show and spending over three hours to talk about a series with us. As always, it's a pleasure. I All the liquids left my body to come on the show. <laughs> so this will be my my final appearance oh, on no. the show. Poor Maxie. Uh, <laughs> I called dibs on his bookbuckler account. Oh, you're moving in. You, you, you don't want the book wall for Fine, I'll just get both. It'll be fine. <laughs> I mean, the real the real treasure loads of comicsology, but I mean, uh, this is a main <laughs> podcast, so you don't want all those Western, Western comics. Western comics, re. And where can the good people find you, Maxie, before you die of heat exhaustion? At the moment, you can just find me on Twitter. At Maxi the B. Uh, I do have a website, FrenchBeffortVictory.com. Yeah, that, that's pretty much all the plugging. Where can we find you two other than on this podcast with me right now? Um, people can find me on Twitter at VLORDGTZ. Um, I'm usually just on there talking about random stuff or, yeah, just whatever I'm doing, which is not that much lately because I've been busy. 
because I, I have a job. So yeah, if you want to talk to me on there about manga or really anything that I'm into, video games, all that stuff, you can go on there. Um, I also have my own uh, podcast on all comic, uh, Drowning in Manga, where we talk about uh, Shonen Magazine, Shonen Sunday series. But uh, those will come out someday. Yes. Maybe. Uh, get it together, v Get it together. <laughs> hey, at least he doesn't have dozens of podcasts on his back like he needs to edit like I do. But on the subject of where you can find me, you can find me on Twitter at LomRamayasha and on Animation Revelation Analyst. Wherever I am, you can find me under the name LomRamayasha. But as for the show, you can find Manga Mavericks on Twitter at Manga underscore Mavericks, on Tumblr at MangaMavericks.tumblr.com, on YouTube on the channel named Manga Mavericks, and on Apple Podcasts and your podcast listening devices and sites and apps of choice under Manga Mavericks. And please, uh, if you would be so inclined, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, subscribe and comment and like us on our YouTube channel. That really helps our podcast grow, helps us reach new audiences, and gives us some important feedback that will help us continue to improve the show in the future. You can also send questions, comments, criticisms to us directly at mangamavericks at gmail.com. And on Twitter and our other social media platforms in general. And of course, you can find the podcast first on all-kamai.com in general. That's our main home base for the podcast. And that about does it for this episode. So now, without further ado, gentlemen, let us sing in peace and harmony. Help me. A beloved classic song. Come on, all together now. Are you ready, Maxie? Are you ready, Wheeler? No. All right, I'm going to begin. Ow. Three, two, one. Look around you, look beyond. You could make an unbreakable bond. The world around is not what it seems. Souls revealed beyond your wildest dreams. So many things I never could see. So many choices falling on me. Could it be my destiny? To be shaman, shaman king. To be shaman, shaman king. If your spirit is strong, you could be the one. I can look at the world in a different light I know what it takes to make it right And I won't give up the fight To be shaman, shaman king There you go, you got six words out For shame First you didn't do the manga rap battle challenge last year And now you didn't sing along to the shaman king over there with me Here's my manga rap for you my name is Max, and I'm here to say I won't sing this song in a cringy way because I'm not good at singing. I don't know words. I ain't got style. I forgot my rhymes, and I ain't got time. I'm going to go home. I'm in my home now, and I'm going to leave the podcast. Bye. Sayonara. Bye. Later.